Such sights to show you. Bring the motherfucking ruckus! Fuck you too! What you what you say? I said I'll state your fucking fair. You'll state my fair? State your fair. Like fucking Jack from State Farm. <laughs> Just going over to fairs and being like, hey, let's fucking state it up. I thought you were gonna PT my Barnum. No, no, PP Pant City is not. PP <laughs> Pant City. <laughs> uh, oh boy, boy, boy. What was I gonna fucking ask you? There was something I was gonna ask you. Like, yeah, well, like, now's the time God to fucking ask me. damn it. <laughs> We've been sitting here for 15 minutes without even recording, Just and now you forget? The shit. We had some good one-liners. Now you You'll for- never hear them. Now you forget? <laughs> <laughs> I have part-time amnesia. I'm sorry. Oh, um, boy, boy, boy. I'm not in a good mood. <laughs> let's just start. Let's, let's just let's start look. start off with that. I'm not in a good mood, and I'm here to record because I'm a man of my word. <laughs> <laughs> let's have a great time. So I hope everyone has a great fucking episode because I'm sober and I'm pissed off. Why are you pissed off? I don't want to get yeah. into it. Oh, it's, just, <laughs> it's its own thing. It's his time. <clears throat> so listen. We gotta talk about a couple things. One thing. Because we've set precedents, right? We gotta talk about a couple things. First thing that I talk about. I went and I saw a Broadway show without music. It's not gay. <laughs> Alright, it's just a play. It's not a musical. It's a play. Yeah. And the reason I saw it, and I took Alley Cat with me, the reason I saw it is because it was touted as a horror play someone online had had accurately i think quite accurately put it as saying it was like an a24 movie got written for this stage that's so and i cool. said that that was my exact reaction i said that sounds fucking cool and if you know a24 as well as i do you know that they're also hit or miss. <laughs> so the online catharsis has been, you have to be into a certain type of horror to think this is a good show because it's really kind of ironically gray scale. The show is called gray house, which is why I say it's ironic that the views have been gray, that they've been mixed. Um, it's not black or white. This is, This is, uh, you will come into this and you will get out of it what you get out of it. And if you haven't been paying attention, you will most likely get nothing. And... Whores get nothing! And the New York Times did, like, a review, and I read it and I laughed. Because I was like, oh, they got nothing. They need this shit spoon-fed to them. To which I say, shut the fuck up and go watch Lion King if you're gonna if you're gonna do that shit, okay? Because we don't have time to deal with your bullshit. You know, there go watch Wicked for the 30th fucking time. I would go say I would go say watch Phantom of the Opera, but I actually think it left Broadway for the first time in 70 fucking years. So you can't even go watch that anymore. So go watch some other simple shit. Because clearly you're not smart enough 
to figure this shit out. Now, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I'm not, like, sitting here on my couch, you know, on my fucking pedestal, looking down at all the plebs, saying, you just don't get it. I'm not doing that. I'm saying, I'm into horror. I thought it was wonderfully acted, even better written, great sound. Sound tech was superb. The music is haunting. And like I said, there's no, it's not a musical, but yes, the little ghost girls sing fucking songs in each act and, and it's haunting because it's acapella. There's no background music. They just all carry each other's voices so well in this kind of haunting cacophony. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's so good. And let me, I want to, I want to just talk about it for a moment just to sell it to you. Um, because I think it's only on Broadway for like another month. So anyone who has the opportunity to go and see this, please go and see it because I think it would make a great movie. I think it would make a great Netflix, you know, uh, original. It wouldn't make a good TV show. The screen time is too low. Uh, maybe like a two part mini series where it's like, I don't know, like 45 minutes a piece or something like an hour a piece. You could flesh out a little bit. There's a little bit to be fleshed out. I do think the story could have a little bit more. And I think the only reason they made it quick was to, to make it into a one act show because there was no intermission with most things on Broadway. You have an intermission and there's at least like an hour and some change in between acts. There was no intermission. This was a clean, like hour and 30 hour and 40 somewhere in there, sit down, watch the entire thing, shut the fuck up, go home. Like that's, that's how it was. It debuted in London first, right? It debuted in Chicago. Oh, okay. It was a completely different cast. Chicago, uh, for I want to say like six months before getting picked up for Broadway. No no London for this one. Okay. And um, what am I thinking of for London? Um, that was American Psycho. American Psycho did a London run for like a year with uh, Matt Smith. Oh, that's fun. Before it came oh, to... Oh, I bet he did a great performance. He did. And I'm surprised they never released the the London soundtrack to let us hear exactly how, he, how he sang some of those songs. Because some of those songs are ragers, and some of them are just 80s songs redone. Um, but anyway. Um, what a waste. Morbius. Morbius. <laughs> it's Morbius time. Uh, what's what's the song he dances to in that one? Uh, uh, poop my pants again. Yeah, poop, poop my pants, pants again. <laughs> Shout out to fucking Puxatani. Shout out to Puxatani Trail. Song. It's his favorite movie, Morbius. <laughs> he loves to morb. He's probably morbid and, right now. Uh, he's pro- yeah, it's morbid time all the time for, for Puxatani Trail. And he goes, have sex, have sex. Poop my pants again, poop my pants again. Anyway, um, back to Grey House See, real quick. How can quick. you be salty now? You just sang poop my pants again. I'm the saltiest bitch. <laughs> I'm, I'm the fucking ocean. <laughs> so listen. Show opens to cold static of a television and I immediately turn to Alley Cat and I say, oh my God, skin him a rink. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And she starts laughing. But anyway, um, kids yeah, are gathered around a TV fun. and you hear old reruns of Looney Tunes because you could hear the meet meet of the Roadrunner and stuff. Oh, sick. Lori Metcalf is uh, asleep on the couch while the kids are gathered around the TV watching. Um, the little deaf girl from Quiet Place is sewing something on a table. Um, and a really raggedy looking girl keeps coming up. There, there are four little girls on the stage. And one little boy who's sitting directly in front of the TV. 
a little Jewish girl who goes by a series of numbers is sitting on the couch. That's her name. It's like 81258 or something like that. Oh, okay. She's sitting on the couch, and she's, like, laughing. And her older sister is on the other side of a sleeping Laurie Metcalf, uh, Sophie Caruso, Sophie Ann Caruso, um, who played Lydia for Beetlejuice on Broadway previously. She's, <laughs> yes, I do. She yes, is I do. wonderful. She's fucking fantastic. Her character's name is Marlo. Uh, she's the oldest of the four girls, and she's kind of a bitch, self-proclaimed. And um, then uh, Little Deaf Girl, who I don't think you ever learned the name of. No, it's like Birdie or Bird. Yeah, it's like Birdie or something like that. She's sitting at the table. It's the little girl, the little deaf girl from Quiet Place. She, she played her on Broadway. She's sitting at the table sewing like a blanket, like a patch into a blanket. But there's this little blonde girl, maybe 12, 14 years old, somewhere in there, um, who keeps coming up from the basement because, yes, this is like a house facade um, with an upstairs and a downstairs staircase on the right-hand side of the stage, uh, stage left. And, um, for people to go upstairs and downstairs when it comes to, to the stage. And there's a door next to the stairs for going outside. And you're kind of looking at this living room fridge combined. The, uh, um, living room, dining room combined, I, I meant to say. There's a fridge in the back, a dining room table. That's where the deaf girl is sitting and she's sewing. And then the rest of the family is on the couch to the right, kind of watching the TV in this kind of open floor setting. The little girl named Squirrel, who's coming up and down the basement, uh, keeps asking for things at the table and growling at her sister and then walking back downstairs. It's very funny. Um, the show is very funny. Before you hear um, car tires screech and, uh, and a loud thud, there appears to be a car accident outside. In walks uh, Paul Sparks and Tatiana Maslani. Paul Sparks I've seen from House of Cards, Tatiana... Uh, from She-Hulk, so I, I know both of them. Um, they're fantastic. They did wonderful jobs. They play a couple that naturally got into a car accident, and they find themselves in the woods at this house. So rocky horror. The occupants of the house hide before the uh, the car crash couple comes in. As transvestites do. Which tells me that they have like a process that they that they almost expected this to happen. Oh. That there's, there's, you know, there's a method there's a ritual to how to they, it. correct, to how they deal with this type of situation. And the, the girls, who I have already spoiled by saying ghost girls, continue to come downstairs and upstairs from wherever they went to hide to introduce themselves to the couple before the mama comes down and introduces uh, the, the boy who does not have a name. He goes by every name that they just choose to call him as the show goes on. Hmm. Um, and he does not have any lines. He is just, he is meant to be um, the embodiment of innocence. Yeah. He, he's he's a man's innocence before uh, they come of age and they, they begin to sin, essentially. In the fuck. Uh, yeah. And um, the show basically is just about this couple getting stuck at this house and they slowly learn that it's kind of a waypoint between life and death. It's like a purgatory. The reason it's called Grey House is because it's it's the one realm between the two. Um, if you have death and you have life, then the Grey House is what exists between the two. The four little girls are dead. It's very sixth sense. You find out how they died, you know, in the last act. Um, but 
essentially what they do is every some odd years, a new woman or couple crashes their car at the house and becomes the new, the, the female becomes the new mother of the house and has to take care of the ghost girls. So Lori Metcalf is kind of on her. If It felt a lot like Let the Right One In. Okay. Because it's like the ghost girls know what's going on, but Tatiana Maslany and Lori Metcalf don't. Okay. And Lori gotcha. Metcalf is, is this old woman who's been taking care of the kids for 30 plus years. Yeah. And she understands how they exist, but she doesn't understand how they ascend or get over their, their deaths necessarily. As the show kind of takes place, one of the girls is chosen. In this case, it's the, it's the young blonde girl squirrel to, um, essentially like place a spell on the man. Cause usually it's just like, it's either a woman shows up at the house and becomes the new mother or it's a man shows up at the house and he is sacrificed for his sins. Oh, fuck. In this case, it was a two-for-one bargain. The guy was kind of shitty and he gets sacrificed and the girl becomes the new mother. Okay. And the reason I say it reminds me of Let the Right One In is because um, there's like an old guy protecting a little girl who's a vampire that entire movie and then he gets recycled, essentially, for a little boy who then you know is going to be the familiar who takes care of the little vampire girl and then the process <laughs> repeats itself. So for this one, it's... It's Tatiana Maslany is slowly coming to terms that her her husband is being drained of his life essence, basically, for all of his sins. And she is being set up to be the new mother for these girls. And as one of the ghost girls, uh, you know, takes on the soul of the of the man and collects it, she ascends by the end of the show. And you kind of see you see this process because the duality is of her soul becoming to manifest in the house. And in one of the coolest jump scares, um, that they could have pulled off, um, the man gets up in the night and, and, um, goes to drink alcohol, um, like moonshine in the fridge, um, which is ironically not moonshine. And all the labels have men's names on oh, them. Fuck. He's drinking. His soul. He's drinking their sins. Uh. Basically. He's like the sin eater. You know, it's, it's that, it's that process as he opens the fridge, an old woman is sitting on top of it and you don't realize it until the light of the fridge Ooh. opens up and Dope. it's, it's an old version of squirrel and she, she begins to seduce him and get him to drink more and more and more and more and more until he gets fattened up enough to be drained Ooh. essentially. And it's very metaphorical. You kind yeah. of pick up on all these things as the show is going on. And, like, he didn't kill any of these girls. He's not responsible for any of their deaths. But he did cause his wife, like, a lot of pain. So, like, he's given a choice near the end, very Midsummer style, of do you want to leave with her or do you want to stay here and kind of finish the process and he like looks right at her and he's like i want the pain Ooh, all right and, no and they and they kill him like right then and there <laughs> and it's shown like the part they take from him gets sewn into the tapestry that Ooh. the girl was sewing at the beginning of the show oh that's fun yeah oh, i love full so circle. so that comes full circle you find out that that tapestry 
is like a physical embodiment of all of the sins that they've collected, which is just, it's full. It's huge. Oh, shit. And um, there's some really great scenes like in the middle of the show where like Tatiana Maslany is starting to realize that like there's a supernatural element going on. Mm -hmm. And she's like, she's forced to play a game. And the girls are like, you want to play a game? She's like, yeah, games are fun. That's fun. And, you know, she's a wonderful actress. So she like has this kind of, you know, brightness to her. And all these girls are just so dark. Like they're saying really cryptic shit the entire show. Like, you know, your lines on your face, like. They represent, like, how much you've smiled or how much you've cried throughout life. And she's like, what does my face say? And, like, the little Jewish girl is like, you've laughed a lot. And she's like, well, I'm not at the end of my life yet. And she's like, no, but when you are, I'll still have seen that you've laughed a lot. <laughs> you know, like, like that type of thing. Soon. And it's, oh, just, it's no. just funny. And, like, they'll just be caught whispering things to another. And when, like, Tatiana sees it and points it out... It's just, they say the most poignant shit. Mm -hmm. And, like, I can't remember specifically what Marlo said, but she was just, like, she asked a question, like, like, have you, have you ever hurt anyone? And when, when, like, Tatiana starts to, like, lie to her, she's just like, you're lying. Just, like, right then and there, just calls her out on it. Like, you're lying. Child. Lies. So what they do is they, they, they want to play truth or hell. And she's like, this sounds like fun. How do we play? And they pull back the carpet on the ground and there's a fucking pentagram. <laughs> like, yes. like fucking hand carved into the into the wooden floor. And she's like, this is not okay. And they're like, no, 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 step into it. <laughs> no, 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 step. And she's It'll like, I It'll don't want to do that. And, and they're like, no, 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 no. And they start pulling out the salt and the chalk and everything. Ooh, fuck. And you're just like, oh shit, what's going to happen? And she's like, if you tell the truth, you get to ask any of us a question, and we will have to answer it honestly. Tell the fucking truth, then. But if, you, but if oh, you have to figure out... Okay, so they're each going to say something. Oh, okay. They're each going to say something. And if you could find the one person in, out of the four of them who isn't lying, oh. who is telling the truth, mm-hmm. then you get to then... No, how, how does it go? I'm fucking it up. <laughs> it's okay. No, you have to find the lie. They're each saying something, and they each say something fucking crazy, which is why I thought it was uh, a truth. But they end up, they're telling the truth, and she doesn't believe them. So she's trying to find the lie. And if she gets it wrong, they ask her something that she has to answer truthfully. And if she doesn't, pain will happen. Sweet. Like, if she lies... Pain is the reaction for being called out. Okay. And she's like, what do you mean by pain? And they're just like, you'll get it. <laughs> you'll you'll figure it. it out. Yep. Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Figure and she's it just out. and she's just like, whatever. So she's like, like, the little Jewish girl just immediately says, I saw my brother shot in the head. Truth. And Squirrel is like, I was caught in a bear trap once. Hmm. And then like, uh, uh, Marlo is like, I'm afraid of the dark. And the little deaf girl, like, signs something, and, and one of them translates for her, saying, like, I hate chocolate. Oh, I thought it was going to be something super fucked up. <laughs> you know? And they and, and she looks around, and she's like, hmm. She's not afraid. And she picks the deaf girl, and she goes, you don't hate chocolate. And they all, and they all start to laugh. They're like, no, 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 that wasn't. She's telling, she's telling the she's truth. She hates, cho- she hates chocolate. You got to find the lie. And so she's like, okay, whatever, whatever. 
And, you know, they do this, they repeat this process like three or four times, and each time you hear them say something, it gets worse and worse. And you're just wondering to yourself, which one of them is telling a fucking lie? Because three of them are telling the truth each time. And you're like, what the fuck? And so... Build that suspense. The first time, it's just like, they ask her, like, and, and you have to answer honestly. It's like, have you ever been sad? And she's like, well, yeah, of course I've been sad. She's like, okay. They, they switch places and they continue telling. And then, like, when she gets it wrong again, I think she points at the Jewish girl. She's like, you didn't see your brother get shot. And she's like, nope, that's the truth. And, 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 and that's when you're like, wait, what? And she's forced to tell another truth. And they're like, have you ever hurt anyone? Yeah, probably. And she's like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, you would, they're like, you would know if you hurt someone. Like, have you ever hurt anyone? And she's like, no. And you just hear Laurie Metcalf fucking scream from somewhere else on stage. Oh. And you're just like, oh, fuck. That's what they meant by pain. <laughs> and she's like, what the fuck was that? She's like, is your mom okay? And they're like, don't worry about it. We got to continue the game. So they switch spots and they go again. And and they say, like, um, what was the third question they ask her? Like, like, are you happy or something? Like, you know, something, something intangible. And she's like, yeah, of course I'm happy. And Lori Metcalf just fucking goes off again. And you're just like, and she's like, she starts to like break down. She's like, I don't want to play this game anymore. Yeah. I'm done. And all the girls start to like wig out. They're like, no, we love this game. We got to keep playing. And like Lori Metcalf comes up and the girls like go back to acting like they're not playing. And she just like pulls Tatiana aside. She's like. Thanks for ending that game. It's a fucking bitch. Because, <laughs> like, she just knew. She just knew immediately what was going on. And it's it's just wild. Like, as the story goes on, you see this old version of Squirrel just kind of, like, making the guy consume these, these sins and relive them and re-experience them. And you start to realize that it's the sins of the men who killed the girls. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're reliving through her and through him and he's just kind of telling the same story and he's kind of your exposition character who's kind of telling you everything that's going on in the background, you know, the the, the second layer of the narrative, while what Tatiana is doing with the girls is that first layer, the forefront, kind of telling you like what physically is happening in the show. Okay. So it's it's just really interesting. By the time you get to the end, you you realize how each of the girls had died and what the process is meant to be and how they have like a last supper moment. And, um, that's kind of like the crux where they have the choice to leave and they know what the answers for both of them are going to be. So they consume the man. Um, he gets turned into moonshine and then, um, Lori Metcalf leaves and you could see for a moment like, the girls are like, this is your chance. It's like, she just left. The door is open. You do not have to be our mother. And, like, the little boy is, like, hugging her. And he's like, you could tell that he's kind of, like, pleading with her to stay. And in that moment that she has to leave, she puts on her coat. She puts on her fucking shoes. She, like, get, she grabs her bag and stuff. Her husband's fucking laying dead on the table. Um, and in that moment, she hesitates at the door. And you realize it's because she sees someone outside. And as the door opens, a new little girl 
walks into the house and sits down at the table. And you're just like, oh, like, this is a forever evolving, like, house. of It's like a wayward home for, like, lost spirits, essentially. So, you know, you're you're led to believe that, like, this new girl who walks in who has no idea what's going on had just died from some awful... Yeah. Some something awful just happened and this little girl just died and now she's in the house and she's confused and she's lost and Tatiana Maslany is like the only adult here yeah, now who, who could possibly try and help them try and organize this to the kids and in that moment seeing that broken little girl sit down at the table with these other girls who she's come to know during her time here she chooses she turns back around she takes her coat off she puts her shoes back down and she starts going to the to the kitchen to cook them something to eat. Like and then it just, it like slowly fades to black. I'm surprised Lori Metcalf just gets to leave. It's something about how with, ta- there's like a rule. It's like when a new woman shows up, you only have like three days or like between, like that's the window for like the house to like open up and let something else happen. Mm-hmm. And like... The idea with Tatiana showing up, the minute she walks into the house, Lori Metcalf is like, oh, my replacement. You're like, it's like, oh, my shift is over. Yeah. You know? Interesting. She starts to have this kind of very, like, it reminded me of, like, Shawshank Redemption a little bit, Mm -hmm. where she's like. That's what I was going to bring up. She was like, I don't know what the outside world is like, because I've been here for 30 fucking years. Yeah. But I know that my time here is, like, done. Mm. Like, I did my thing. I took care of these kids. I've seen this process repeated. I've seen, like, little girls, like, cross over to the other side. Because when they're done consuming the husband, I forgot to say it, Squirrel crosses over. The basement door opens by itself and this bright light is shining through and she descends. And that's when the new girl walks in to the house. So it's it's a replacement process. So you realize, like... When an old one crosses over from a consumption process, a new one enters from some type of awful scenario that happened out there in the world. And um, they need, like, a guardian. They need a mother. You know, someone... You know, they obviously didn't have a mother in their life to protect them. Um, so they need a mother now to guide them to the afterlife, basically. And it it just, like... When someone described it as A24 on stage, is the most apropos comparison. Um, because when I turned to her, uh, Alley Cat, at the end of the show, I said, okay, so it was The Others. I was going to say The Orphanage. Fair. Brilliant Spanish film. Brilliant, brilliant Spanish film. I, I said The Others had a baby with uh, Hill House. Oh, okay. That makes sense, too. And I was like... Because the house, the house is its own character. It makes noises throughout the entire show. Like, whenever something happens, you could see Laurie Metcalf just like, just like rub like a, a floor, like a, Ooh, okay. uh, a banister or like a floorboard. And the house Super will like groan okay. in response and she'll be like, shh, 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 shh. Ah, that's you know? fucking brilliant. I love this writing. It's, it's fantastic. It's so, it was so fucking good. And I immediately got home and I tried looking up to see if the soundtrack was anywhere, because I wanted to show you mm-hmm. um, the haunting fucking little songs they sing in every act. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still with me. Ooh, okay. Like, 
they, it's in between, like, eerie old school nursery shit. What do you expect from kids? And chanting. Okay. So they're all saying lyrics at different times, but they're overlapping and they're all doing different octaves. Okay. So it and it and in acapella, it's fucking haunting. Yeah. Because then you have someone like Marlo who comes in with that dissonance because she played Lydia on Broadway. She has a wonderful singing voice, and then you have like the deaf girl who's just like pounding on shit Mm. and like keeping a beat, a rhythm, yeah. And then you have Squirrel, who probably has the craziest voice of all of them, who comes in with this, like, high falsetto, <laughs> who's just, like, howling at different points. And and then um, the little Jewish girl reminded me of uh, fucking Susie from Stranger Things, because mm-hmm. she's in this nightgown the entire show, and she has these huge glasses on, <laughs> and these, li- these little pigtails, and she comes in and she starts doing uh, fucking um, Harmony. Okay. With with squirrel, yeah, and I was like Jesus with the harmony and the dissonance and then the and the sounds they're making, they're all like stomping and like and like grunting around Just like the room and shit. Building a fucking man, <laughs> man. When you're sitting there and it's and it's fucking deathly silent and all that you have is this little girl just singing about like being like lost in the woods and like like a hunter finding you or something like that, like. Wild. That's so fucking cool. wild. Fucking shit. That's got to be made into a. Film and I know, there. and I know that there are people on Reddit, and I know that there are people in New York who like went and saw this and left like halfway through, and oh, said and said this was shit. I didn't get it. I didn't uh, like it. And it's getting such. It's getting. It's getting honestly dragged through the mud a little bit. And I don't. I. I know I said it earlier that like that just means you're stupid and you probably don't understand it, but it isn't for everyone. Yeah. It it isn't for everyone. Just the way like Hellraiser isn't for everyone, just the way like The Ring isn't for everyone, like you know, there's a vast spectrum of horror and what people think is acceptable and understandable and like this is this is beyond M Night Shyamalan level storytelling. Like I thought Sixth Sense was like an apropos like comparison at first and then i was like nah this is beyond that this is this is like the others Mm -hmm. it's not just i see dead people it's we've been dead the entire time and you've really had to have been paying attention to figure it out like but yeah um really wild i would i would i would see it again in a fucking instance because it just sounds it sounds fucking awesome Uh, like on paper and and the execution of it on stage, ha- you know. Yeah, but like, do you want to see Wicked again? <laughs> I've honestly never seen Wicked, and oh, it's because and okay. it's because I I almost refuse to. Vehemently. I didn't like Lion King. It was like my least favorite Broadway show ever. I've seen a lot of shit on Broadway, and I and I don't know which one I hate the most. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I thought Beauty and the Beast was pretty annoying. You know, it's um, funny. Uh, one of the most recent local shows that I saw, like, local to our area, small area, mm-hmm. was Brigadoon. Yeah. And then I went to see fucking Beetlejuice down in Philly after you saw it. And what is the show that they make fun of in Beetlejuice? Brigadoon. Fucking Brigadoon. Yeah. I was losing my shit. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fair. Um, man, I just, 
I almost immediately want to see it again, but at the same time, it was such it was such a fucking hassle driving into New York. It's always yeah. such a fucking hassle the, driving into New York. It's the only place that I can think of in America where like you have to pay to get in. There's no way around it. You are either taking the subway, you're taking a ferry, you're taking a tunnel, a bus. There is no way yeah. to get into New York City without paying, and it's stupid. <laughs> For me, it like I forget what my car cost. The toll, the toll for Holland wasn't too expensive, let alone it was on a Sunday afternoon. But I remember parking for that entire day cost around fifty bucks, Ugh. and it was right next to the theater, so you know I was paying a premium. <laughs> but anyway, um, I can't shout out Grey House enough. Wonderful performances from everyone. I know I just kind of spoiled everything, but like it's one of those things where you have to see it for yourself to really understand why it's so mesmerizing. Like, I could sit here and I could spoil every M. Night Shyamalan movie, and I could spoil the, the exact plot of Hill House, and I don't think I would I would do it nearly as much justice just talking about what it's about versus watching how great the performances are by these very talented people, you know, as they pull this shit off. For it to get shown, um, that just sucks. Well, yeah, I mean... the cynics in the world, I guess. That's... I mean, it's the people... Uh, it... There are two sides to it, the way the way I see it. There was the New York Times side, which is, this doesn't fit in with what's usually on Broadway, and I'm just going to shit on it because I've, I've seen Book of Mormon and <laughs> Hamilton, and I think I know everything. Too hard, housey. Right. And then there's the completely uneducated side, which I really will say, go fucking watch Lion King then, <laughs> because we don't want you here. I just want jump scares. And that's the thing. It Give wasn't me red faced demon. It wasn't super jump scare, and which we will get into red faced demon. It wasn't super jump scare, but it was atmospheric as fuck. And every time those lights turned off, I was worried something was gonna just be standing on the stage staring out at the audience. <laughs> and they did it like five or six times, where the house would just get angry and everything would go off, and you'd hear people scurrying around the stage, and then the little girls would just start laughing. And then, like, they'd stop, and you'd hear, like, an old woman laughing, and you're just like, who was that? Like, what just <laughs> happened? That's what but, you need, man. That's, Take me out of this world, put me in yours for a little while. Yeah. God damn it. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I would easily go see it again, because I just fuck, I, I fucking loved it, and Alley Cat and I talked about it the entire ride home, and she was looking up stuff on Reddit, and she was telling me what people are saying, and she was explaining a couple of the things I missed, and helping me kind of wrap up my understanding of it. But even then, I was, ju I was just thoroughly, thoroughly convinced. Huge smile across my face the entire show. Where I was just like, this was made for me. I am the target audience. And I looked around, and I didn't see a lot of people like me. So that, that right there tells me that, you know... Maybe this was just too much. Broadway's not for the right Broadway. place for that, yeah. And when I went onto YouTube to try and find any media related to it, I actually saw that Matt Pat did an entire forty minute Q and A after one of the opening nights. Oh, very cool. And I was like, that's not just a game theory, it's a gay theory. <laughs> anyway, uh, and, and he's just talking to an audience full of hipsters 
about what they think the show is about, and you just get to hear different people's interpretations of what they think the show is about, and that's where I kind of... (laughs) Um, Some people put a lot more significance into the house and, like, the deer that's in the road that caused the car to smash. Like, they think that that's, like, the spectral body of one of the girls, like, a new girl coming to the house Mm. type of thing. There's there's a lot there's a lot more layers to it that I didn't I didn't get into to preserve kind of more of the story but the innocence mangled on the side of the road. Well, they choose to consume it at the end of the show. Like it was like oh remember that deer you hit like we cooked it for dinner and now we're gonna eat it. Hmm. Interesting. Fair enough. Yeah. Gotta use your resources when you're out in the middle. That's of actually what I think the husband says. Like oh didn't want to let it go to waste. He like, pull, <laughs> he like legit pulls a leg off and there's like blood everywhere and shit. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's fun. Um, next thing I want to talk about very quickly is we're continuing to watch Insidious because we watched the first two before recording the first part of this series. <laughs> the transgender agenda that is Insidious <laughs> 2. With the pride. The pride <laughs> that is uh, emancipated uh, by this series. Your boy Marilyn. <laughs> and... Um, talking about the third and the fourth one before the fifth one comes out, which it already is out, we're gonna, we're gonna go watch it, and then come back and talk about it for when, uh, we're reading the last part of this series. Yeah, and we can spoil um, the fuck out of it, cause it'll be out for a long time. Cause it'll time. have been out for like a month at that point. <laughs> um, but, he- he- here's the thing. People shit on the third Insidious movie because it really doesn't have much to do with the rest of the series at all. It's the first kind of stepping stone for the, uh, the psychic old woman Mm -hmm. character, Elise. Elise. She, um, she gets introduced here. She's kind of going over the trauma of losing her husband. She's getting pulled back into the psychic world after having dealt with, um, the shitty, shitty old woman slash man slash person spirit that loves to choke her the fuck out um, from the first movie and that haunted uh, Patrick. So, yeah, and the second one. More specifically, the second one. And, um, you know, she's been she's been out of it. She's been out of the industry because she almost died and she wasn't a fan of I'm that. the game. Yeah, she's out of the game. And a little girl, you know, who wants to be, who wants to be a star, just like Pearl, wants to, um, uh, contact her mom who just died of cancer. And so she's trying to get some answers out of Elise when Elise is like, nah, you're being stalked by like some evil fucking spirit and I don't want any part of it. Bye. Everybody's got a parasite around this woman. Yeah. Got some parasites (laughs) and, uh, that old man spirit. Uh, starts fucking vicious, dude. Yeah, he he really no holds barred. Um, just fucking ruins this girl. Um, gets her gets her hit by a car. Gets both of her legs mangled. Gets her put in you know, put in a wheelchair. Put in put on basically hospice inside her own house. I think she was in a coma for a little bit. I could be wrong though. Yeah, no, I think you're right. She was probably out for a couple days, weeks, and um, and near the end she's in a coma too because yeah. she loses herself takes half her soul yeah it takes half her fucking soul and that's when elise shows back up to help the dad out because you know she she realizes that 
This, oh, shit. This chick's absolutely fucked just, without her. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Just like that. And I, I like this movie. Yeah. I thought the brutality of the ghost is under, you know, underappreciated because I don't think any of, like, because let's, let's go back and reanalyze the first one. Lots of swinging doors, lots of guys just standing there. Violin! V- many violin stings, sound cues, and that's about it. And then in the second one, we start to get choked out even more. Lots of ADR, and baby. And lots of shitty ADR it's, at oh, that. so bad. And creepy, uh, and creepy Patrick Wilson. <laughs> and that's that's about all of the I'm scares you get out of the I love you. <laughs> rye smile. <laughs> and that's about all you get out of the first two movies. So for this third one to like actually be spooky as fuck was surprising. Just visually, surprising. that guy is fucking great too. Like yeah. Uh, just the fucking mask that comes off. Just gross, gross old patient pedo vibes. Mm-hmm. Not cool. Gnarly shit what he does with, with her soul, too. It's like always clinging to him with like no face and shit. Yeah, it's like handicapped. It's like uh, pieces of it are missing. Mm-hmm. Really fun. No, I thought it was I thought it was fine. And it, and it kind of gets shit on because it's the first one not to deal with the Lambert family. But I say fuck him, honestly. Rose Byrne is a great actress, but she's just fucking flat as the mother in that yeah. series. So, like, why do people like the Lambert so much? I understand the love for the Warrens in the Conjuring films, but, like, right. the Lamberts just don't do it for me. No. <sighs> and then we watched the fourth one where I admittedly fell asleep, but I did go back and I rewatched uh, the ending. And I gotta say, fourth one is pretty good. I like the fourth one. The twists and turns, it does kind of take off um, right after the third one. Yep. Because the third one is just like, oh, something's coming in, and, and it alludes to the red face Darth Maul again. Mm-hmm. And then you think like, oh, so when does the fourth one take place? Well, the fourth one takes place right after the third one, but now we're getting into Elise's backstory. Mm-hmm. We're going back to the house she was raised in to see the ghost that haunted her that got her into this mess. That showed her the other side, that taught her how to connect to that, and you know, pretty much influenced her entire life when it comes to the further. Yeah, the further and communicating with the dead because you realize that like the dad was pseudo possessed by yep. this thing, and the mom was pseudo possessed by this thing, and it killed her, and just like basically all of her trauma was brought on by the dead, mm-hmm. and then it came back to the dead, like yep. for for how she accessed it. So that's like. Interested different layers of storytelling going on there and the twists and turns about like the guy who calls them back actually being like a psycho who's kind of being pseudo possessed as well, who also is collecting like a girl in his basement, which ends up yep. being like the, the twist. That's the um, one thing about this movie. It's it's nice that they have that twist, but it's also weird in, in that the ghost stays in this house. Because in the, yes. all the other ones, they move it follows to the person. million houses, and they'd always follow You'd you. wonder why this thing didn't just follow Elise her entire yeah. life after feeding off its entire family. Mm-hmm. I, when you think, like, Stephen King and Shine, like, she's, like, the shiniest of them all. You would totally fair, stay with her. A 100%. Um, but the son gets out of it, too. The brother, the brother's just like, Elise, I don't want to fucking know you anymore. You spooked me as a kid. Mm-hmm. And you he ruined just, my life. And he just bails. So it's like... Left me with the real monster. Dad succumbs to shitty life. And doesn't she go back and, like, talk to him? Yeah, she goes back and she hugs him and she's like, 
She's like, I forgive you for my shitty fucking childhood. And he's like, it wasn't me. Like, I was possessed too. I think that was his ghost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But they still have a moment of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. ...of sincerity, just like how mom has moment of, I watched you get (laughs) beaten my entire life. Now it's time for me to do the beating on the ghost. That killed me. And she slaps it with a lamp. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking slaps it into another fucking dimension. And that's the end of My Hands Are Keys, which which is, there are elements of My Hands Are Keys which are fun, like the let yeah. me put it in your heart and knock you out and let mm-hmm. me put it in your throat to make so you shut the fuck up. you, yeah. Elements of it are cool, but why don't you put it in my, like, butthole, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's the real key that's, What happens heart. when you turn that key? Oh, I turn on. But what if you put it happens. in, like, my brain? Is oh. that shown? Then you just become... Do I just get dumb? <laughs> yeah. Am I just oh, high then? <laughs> Am I just high now? I feel like out of all of the... That ever happened to you? <laughs> Call me right now, please. <laughs> I feel like out of all the ghosts, it should be like the most powerful, yet it has like the shittiest ending. Yet, yet again. Yeah. We end the film and Darth Maul is just sitting uh, outside the, the worst window. worst one, too. Yeah. It's like a fucking puppet. It's from like six oh. It's from like six feet away, and he just kind of goes, hi, <laughs> like right up into the window. Eh, <laughs> Garuga mesh. Anyway, it's just, it's bad. And here was my, here was my like quick opinion. I've actually thought the Insidious movies have gotten better with each installment. I... After rewatching them with you, because originally I thought three and four weren't good, and I think that's because I saw both in a drive-in movie theater where you I can't saw them that once. Dialogue yeah. and the lighting is probably love all love horror off. films, love drive-ins, but they just don't work together because you're not going to be able to see shit and not yeah. understand. I have more fun rewatching things I like at drive-ins as opposed to seeing something new. Gotcha. Because you're that almost always going to miss. A detail, a sound cue, something literally happening because the lighting is going to be off. You just can't capture the same experience in a a movie theater. And you can come at me, Nicole Kidman, (laughs) because heartbreak feels good in a place like this. So, (laughs) just love watching those videos where she's just watching like porn or something, (laughs) and she's just so engaged. See, I like the joke that she is there to watch Jurassic World (laughs) because I don't actually imagine Nicole Kidman would. It's like, I love dinosaurs. In a place like this. I love to... I came to a theater to watch Creed (laughs) 3. But yeah, you're so right. It just gets better and better. Because, like, I don't think the first one has aged well at all. See, I... When we were watching the first one, I actually gushed about the first one. I thought the first one, ironically, tying it back to my original conversation, would make for a really good stage show. And I thought that, like, the cheapness... Which is like the Blumhouse way. Let's spend mm-hmm. let's spend five million dollars on what's gonna rake in a hundred, and you know the minimalist, the the ambiance, the aesthetic, the just kind of I'm filming this in a house, mm-hmm. and that that's it, the cheapness, you know. I appreciate that. Give me those scares with the man behind the curtains. And I love the ending of the first one. Because right off the bat, they fucking kill Elise. Yeah. But then and you they realize, think, oh, we made a mistake. And you think she's not going to come back. And then, like, she comes back every fucking time. Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever. A lot of other horror series do that. It's fucking, it's fucking fine. You could Obi-Wan this shit. <laughs> and, you know, then, then the second one, little convoluted, but bigger budget, more stuff going on. Explaining, the, looping back to the first one, making mm-hmm. the first one enhanced a little bit. 
It, it informs. Yeah. And then you get to the third one, and it's like, oh, we, we now know what actually scares you, so we're going to remove the shitty sound cues, and we're just going to do, like, a legit scary ghost. Yep. And we're going to give you what you want, which is Elise. Yep. A, a movie about Elise. And the two nerds, Specs and Tucker. Correct. And then they come back in the fourth one. And that's, and that's where we're at. So now going into the fifth one, I'm just like, shit, we don't have Elise. Well, she'll have a, like, Not a literally. Ran- she'll have a Randy Meek Scream 3. <laughs> Not literally, at least. Yeah. Don't know if Lee Winnell and his big his big buddy is coming back. Yeah, maybe a cameo or maybe something. Maybe a cameo or something. And most, like, awfully importantly, we're back to the Lambert yep. family. Forgotten forgotten siblings. <laughs> what is it? Brother and sister? There's a younger yeah, sister well, and an older brother. Yeah, well, the sister was the baby during the time, so we'll see if she's actually a if character now. If she's actually now. a character now. Concerned. <laughs> Color me concerned. Um, also, like, what trauma is there going to be from, like, the dad pulling a Jack Nicholson on them when they were still, like able to remember things because they were like yeah it's what, like, like the shining if eight if, and five if like Jack i think survived. i would remember that my dad trying to fucking kill me with a hammer yeah imagine the shining but danny danny actually has to like he's forced to spend weekends with his dad <laughs> after they divorce oh, and court's no. just like listen we know he tried to kill you with a badminton but uh he can't hammer? make child support was that what it was? so i guess he should hang in the out book, with you in the book it was like yeah a, the badminton the croquet it was a croquet mallet, mallet yeah, yeah. It's like, I know that we, he tried to do that, but, like, custody, <laughs> child support. <laughs> I probably made the right call with the axe in the movie, the first one. But but here here's the thing. Patrick Wilson is fantastic in, like, everything he's in. Aquaman. And if he... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> and if he has to... He's directing it, too. Did he? Yeah. Didn't know that. If he feels a more personal connection to this one and it's kind of re-tapping um, one and two. Okay. Yeah. I'll give it to him. And the the kid from fucking Iron Man 3, he's all grown up now. Yeah. He's here He's here to come back and, and relate to his papa. Isn't that supposed to be Tom Holland? Isn't there like conspiracies that that no. was Tom Holland? No. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's the little that's kid at the Stark Expo thing. and yeah, the Iron I'm Man I'm fucking that up. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um... Little kid, little kid, uh, forgot his name, Har- Harley. Yeah, from... he shows up briefly at the funeral. At the funeral, yeah. correct, in Endgame. And um, he's he's back now in art school, <laughs> fag. Hey. And um, he he's re-experiencing stuff from the other side, too. So it seems like there's some type of convergence happening where both the dad and the son are reconnected again mm-hmm. from the further, and now it's... It's coming back for that hashtag, the revenge. You become undead demon boy. And um, I think Darth Maul is back, if it's not fairly obvious, because he's in the trailer, yeah. I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's like the one thing that they haven't really closed. Like Where he came from, what every, he's about? I think so. I, Like, is the bride completely dead? The tranny bride? Y- yeah, I think so. We've gotten... Uh, that's, that's two's ending. Yeah, she is gone. So like the red demon's the only thing really left that like that hasn't we don't been really know expunged. how to end that. Yeah, because what was what was her? 
Elise's kind of like explanation at the end of the first one is like, eh, if you close the door and you just don't open it again, you know, it'll forget about you or something like that. Mm. And then I feel like the implication of the fifth one is like, well, he's remembering. So the door is slowly being open opened up back up again. And that's where he's just like, Ooh, you know, like it's, we're cooking again. You know, he's, <laughs> he's ready to fucking Darth Maul hey get oh. back in there. Here I come. I'm let me, talking. Let me do my weird window thing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if you have not seen that fourth movie, just do it just to see that ridiculously looking demon at the end. It's incredible. <laughs> Looks like a fucking like one of those dolls that you like uh, squeeze and like the, <laughs> and eyes, the eyes pop go out. Pop up. <laughs> it's exactly what it fucking is. <laughs> oh shit! Don't go pee pee pants city. <laughs> <laughs> More like, like, massive BM city. Oh, Dietary nice. supplement city. Ooh. Haven't had a solid bowel movement in three weeks city. Ooh, they got them fiery, fiery bad boys. <laughs> I always hate wiping after a fiery bad uh, boy. Don't even, like it takes don't even get me forever. into it. Forever. What, what were you going to say? I was going to say the last time we did one of these here stories, we talked a lot about our experiences with cops because it was a cop story. So you invited, your, did. you invited your cop friend over to talk about cop stuff. But then we read the story and at the end, he ain't no cop no more. He ain't no cop no more. Now he going to a mental institution. So I wanted to ask, do you have any mental institution experiences? God damn it. <laughs> uh, this was probably a story I was saving for a different episode. Oh. But uh, I'll go ahead and, and touch on it here. Um, when I was 20... Uh, my life had fallen apart and I was completely alone. And one night I got really drunk and almost OD'd. And when my uh, roommate found me, he called an ambulance. And when they asked how that happened, I said I did it to myself. Mm-hmm. And they right said... <laughs> And they that said, the magic words. do you want to uh, see someone about this? And I said, sure. And so they put me on a minimal 72 hour, 72 hour uh, uh, like, uh, yeah, where, where I'm like surveyed, essentially. And uh, that, that 72 hours ended up becoming two weeks. And... Uh, I was able to confirm that I am a bipolar manic depressive and uh, suicidal thoughts are a real thing and you got to deal with them responsibly, which I did not. And uh, we all we all have some dark times, but what matters is that we get through them and we get through them. With the help of those around us. So when you have those moments, there is no one more helpful than your friends and family and genuine connections and network. Um, The people that want you to succeed. The people that want you to be alive. You need to also want it to. Yeah. But you gotta find that, you know. And so um, my experience in there was fucking nuts. Because let me tell (laughs) you... Um, at Geisinger in Pennsylvania, in Northeast PA, 
they uh, they have mixed ward. It is on the same level as the hospice. So you have all the dead people or dying people right next to all the people who want to die and who are also actually insane. It is a three-part mixed crowd. Um, The people that were genuinely nuts were constantly running around and screaming and hurting themselves and others. Um, The ones that were there for genuine help were almost completely overlooked because of the atmosphere. And uh, the only times that I felt any progress was being made was during my one-on-ones with um, my specific... Uh, sanctioned doctor at that place at that time who really just explained to me that like if I want to be on medication I'm going to be on it for the rest of my life (laughs) and I did take that to heart and I was on that medication for what got me through the rest of college eventually but then the minute I finished college I felt like a giant weight was lifted from my shoulders so I stopped medication and ever since then, I haven't really gone back to any of that, like, darkness. I think it was very much about the place I was at in my life. Um, but also, getting to see the genuinely insane and getting to see the genuinely dying is an eye-opening fucking experience. And it really puts that shit into perspective for you. So I think all the sad kids out there who cut themselves and want to kill themselves, which I can call. relate to, because um, I did both of those things. Um, it's a real fucking cold slap of truth to see an actual dying person and to see an actual insane person. Um, I was in a room with what I can only confirm is someone who is completely nonverbal, kept me up all fucking night making noises and screaming and hitting himself and shit. Uh, had no clue what was going on there. You're not allowed to ask about other people and they have to be able to share during sharing time with groups um, to be able to tell their own story. And let me tell you, this guy never showed up to groups. He was maybe 15, 20 years older than me, acting like a fucking seven-year-old. It was just the craziest shit. Some real real cuckoo's nest type of experience. And I don't mean fun. Yeah. When I was an EMT, we we would take people to different wards every now and then and just do transfers like that. And, like, I have never once heard a decent story about, like, any of these programs. And, like, it just makes me think about, like, Penhurst and everything, how these places oh, are, yeah. were probably opened up with the best of intentions. But, like, and then just spiraled. Yeah. Human, humans are just, like, generally, like, not the best. <laughs> no, and you can't expect others to be responsible for them when they have no stake yep. in their lives. Penhurst was treated as a trash can. Oh yeah, people just put people there to forget about them. It was a in their own. Filth, it was a Kennedy. Abuse, yeah. It was a it was a Kennedy daughter situation. Penhurst, and it was like, I don't know. I'm, I'm thankful for my roommate, and I'm thankful for my father, and I'm thankful for, like, the friends that I had while I lived there that helped me out through that time and helped me get past that time and. You know, I'm I'm eventually thankful for, you know, like my brother and my mom and my sister and the people who helped me like physically get out of that place. But like it was totally something I had to do myself. And I'm I'm not like I'm not trying to turn this into some type of like I'm proud of myself story because I'm, I'm not like I I should have known like not to like 
go there. Like, not to fuck around like that. Because very much medication, painkillers, sleep meds, and alcohol. Like, fuck around and find out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um... But like my, I don't know, my, my early twenties was fucking wild. I was, I was dating a girl who, um, was constantly cheating on me and I would see her with other guys and I would just lose my shit. And even when we weren't together, I would see her with other guys and lose my shit. And then she would show up at my house drunk in the middle of the night and we'd fuck and, you know, and then like I, the lines would get blurred and I would get confused all over again and then she'd tell me I'm worthless the next day. And then, you know, it just it kept repeating into this terrible cycle. And then, you know, she was committed at one point during our relationship because uh, I found I found her with that gun. And um, I called I called like services on her, essentially. Like I called an ambulance and I said, like, no, like because I, I had caught her like doing stuff to herself and shit. And like the first time I took her to the hospital, I just, I just flat out said like, no, she did this to herself. Like you should keep her here. And she fucking hated me for that shit. And only after like visiting her and seeing the help that she got, did I think, uh, that I could do the same thing, but I went somewhere else and it was not as helpful. And uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I shouldn't have been in that situation to begin with, but the heart wants what the heart wants. And the brain convinces itself it wants the same thing. And, um... Life's about experience. You know, you gotta learn how to break those cycles. I figured it out. She figured it out. We no longer have anything to deal with one another. Um, the person she met when we stopped dating is the person she eventually married. Good for her. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) Um, I... I... I'm happy that I had the strength to get through what I got through with her because it could have killed me at any point. Um, like, let me tell you, when you are dealing with a highly intoxicated, very volatile female who has a firearm pointed at you, anything can happen. And that is when you call the cops. And I did. <laughs> and, and I that's don't... that's how we met. And I don't regret it. <laughs> really? I wish that's how we met. Jesus, what a fucking story that would be. Ready for the real Maury trust? Yeah. I married her. No! <laughs> that would be awful. Just kidding. Oh my Just God. kidding. I'm gay. Nice. <laughs> and this is where we kiss. So, so Deputy Dewey... Uh, your experience in the in the same field comes from a professional, yeah, standpoint. Yeah, I, You're I, on the other side of the I've river. I've never had a, a time in my life where I got committed or anything along those lines. Never. I unfortunately I even know say, too many. <laughs> I won't even say that I've like physically like obviously like depression can have various forms, but I wouldn't even say that I've ever been like diagnosed with depression or anything along those lines. So very different perspective from what I've seen. I've just seen. Literally everything from people's heads being on streets after being run over by a truck to just talking still wild. just talking to like a teenager about like what they're going through with cutting and everything along those mm-hmm. lines. So without, you know, I don't I don't want to put their, you know, shit out out there to air. Um, but, you know, three other people on the show have been through what I've been through and they, they have their own experience. And it's something I've wanted to talk about on the show before. Even here at episode 259, like, me just talking about me, I'm comfortable doing that because it's not who I am anymore. Mm -hmm. I haven't had a fucking depressed, suicidal moment since, I don't fucking know, 
even during the pandemic, I was perfectly fucking okie-dokie, you know, like, I kind of just turned to, like, weed, and it mellowed <laughs> me, the f- and it mellowed me the fuck out, and I'm not joking when I say that. Different kind of prescription. I'm not joking. I, I was the worst kind of anal retentive, frustrated, type A person for the first, like, 20 years of my life. And when I started to get high and calm the fuck down, (laughs) I changed as a person. And I am glad, because I don't think I could have survived much more continuing being the same kind of person that I was before before this show even started cuz I would say the worst the worst times in my life all happened before like 2015 so it all predates this show it all predates a, a much earlier point in my life and I got through it it turns you into a better person you know you learn from it uh you 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 grow through what you go through or you don't I like that that's a shirt right there it is a shirt put baby Groot on there Hell yeah. I mean, he he killed himself. What? Oh, for love. The Groot yeah. that died yeah. in the first movie not is the not Groot. the same Groot from, from 2, 3, and, you know, Holiday Special. It's just not it's just not factually accurate. Yeah. Well, anyway, didn't, <laughs> didn't mean to depress anyone, but I'm happy I did. here, man. Let's read a shitty story. <laughs> um, here's, the, here's, I do want to, I do want to, like, general, like, PSA. Um... Don't come to me with your problems, but definitely talk to someone. That's fair. I'm joking. You can come to me with your problems. I will literally listen to anyone's problems and always give them the best advice I possibly can. And that's that's just always been the person I've been. I'm just not trying to validate my opinion at all. I might give you the worst fucking advice on the planet. I literally just said smoking weed saved my life. I'm not a doctor. You can't. I'm a captain. Okay, you gotta understand. You gotta find what his name might be deputy. Chief. He's not actually a government figure. That you know of. <laughs> My name the is, Illuminati. My name is Ted Cruz. I am. Oh shit! I am the Zodiac Killer. Honestly, could you remake my uh, character turn to the Zodiac Killer now? <laughs> but still have the deputy hat. I was gonna say, take off that mustache. <laughs> Anything can. Who's happen. behind the stash? Um, no, it's we're never. Uh, people have to take what they take on this show, um, at face value because we are we are who we say we are and we we act how. We are pretty much in life and in person, and none of this is an exaggeration by any degrees. Um, none of this is an act. Um, if if I didn't mean it, I wouldn't say it, and I would delete it from the show, and if anyone has ever done anything that I would consider reprehensible, you've never heard it, because I've never posted it. So, uh, I've said it before, like, the relationships I've had with the people on this show are, are genuine, and the things that we say on this show is genuine, so do understand that I come from a general place of PSA saying if you are experiencing tough times, tough thoughts, anything related to those things, you should genuinely talk to someone. I don't think the reason one does what I did is when they choose not to talk to anyone. I chose not to talk to anyone. I knew if I had like, called my dad that night and asked him to do something for me, he would have. And I did not want to inconvenience him with my existence. So you, you, 
you kind of sit and you stew in that long enough and you convince yourself that it's the only option. So just know that it's not and push for whatever connection you can because it will be your fucking life preserver for this world. Um, that being said, unsubscribe, kill yourself, and let's get into the uh, story for today, um, which is the part two of the... Uh, I keep calling it General Mills, but isn't that a cereal <laughs> Captain company? Crunch. Yeah, Captain Crunch over Don't here. Don't worry, guys. At your funeral, I will show up like the red-faced demon in Insidious 4 and just be like, Hey, guys. <laughs> Google eyes. Um... <laughs> Uh, it's Mineral Wells. Oh, gen- that's right. That's general, right. Yeah. General Mills. Mineral Wells. The, the cure-all, be-all water that cures everyone, but in actuality, fucks you up. Qu- yeah, quick quick recap of what we just covered, what we just read last week. Cop moves to Newtown. Town is known for crazy water. Crazy water makes people see and hear things that aren't actually there, or are they? which ends up being uh, dovetailed uh, experimentation from doctors in the previous years of living in this city on both children and their parents to spooky effect. And um, everyone has PTSD. No one is okay with it. And now it has the ability to physically actually kill people. And who knows... Who knows who's actually responsible? Who knows who's actually at the bottom of it? Who knows if we're ever going to actually figure any of this shit out? Because um, we now are crossing into what might be unreliable narrator territory. Because he'd be crazy. I don't know how to process that necessarily. Because, listen, you could get committed for being totally sane. In fact, I think most people are. Because you are you are telling yourself that you're not feeling well, and that's why you're going. But you just don't know why or what or how, and that's where institutions kind of they can get their bad rap for not figuring that out the right way, not handling that the right way, not treating you the right way. Um, We're going to see if the cop who absolutely took the fall for (laughs) the death of an older woman who was trying to help him, she she figured it out. She put it together for him. She said, oh, yeah, the people who were um, testing on the water, making the water bad for everyone were the same people who were killing kids and killing their parents and putting them in mental asylums and shit. She was a cool character. I'm Um, upset that she's gone. Yeah, she, uh, she died. And... Of course, this guy runs into the scene of the crime and starts touching everything. Oh, blood. What a great cop. And starts picking up her body parts <laughs> and gets one. He wonders, yet he wonders why he was framed. Everybody's talking to me like, you know, we're friends. Yeah. Guilty. <laughs> and I just, you know, he he pleads insanity because I think his lawyer told him to. And because they didn't have, like, actual... Evidence that he verifiable evidence things. that yeah. he was there and he actually did the thing, but like I think he had the weapon and I think he, his prints were on the body parts, so it's it's tough. He had just seen her like a day or so prior, so it's like he had a connection. He people saw her with him. People like, saw him be like agitated too and weird over the last couple yeah, of days. Yeah, there was the that dude. In, there was that dude in the bar who also had a connection. Um, it's interesting. I I think the series is interesting. I think it has the ability to still go um, 
a couple places that we might not be expecting, and who knows if uh, the inst- the mental institution is going to be um, one of those places that we go that is interesting. So, um, do you want to start? Sure. So this is the part two of the series. It's under a different series name because it is a companion. It is called Welcome to Smithfield, My Time in a Mental Institution for a Crime I Didn't Commit, a.k.a. The Mineral Wells Saga Part 2 Continued. General Mills Saga. General Mills, Captain Crunch is one slimy fuck, and and Toucan Sam is in on the whole thing. Those Rice Krispie boys doing a bunch of coke. Is uh, tricks involved with that too? The Snap, crackle, pop. That, that rabbit's up to no good. <laughs> tricks are for kids. <laughs> the day of the judge. That's what the, co- that's what the doctors said when they killed the kids. Oh, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> the parents. I mean, the me parents just, found out and cut off these the limbs real quick. Lobotomize. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 uh, destroy the parents too to make sure they don't miss their children. Sounds fair. The day the judge committed me was the lowest point in my life. I was admonished in court for the horrible way in which I had committed the crime and about how many lives would be affected by it. I sat in silence, barely blinking, staring into the void of my past. The thought that repeated in my brain, what did I do to deserve this? How did everything go so wrong? Mary's family was present in the courtroom. I just want one of those like quick rewinds like, I bet you're wondering how I got here. <laughs> to be continued. Dun, 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 dun. They're puffy teary, streaked faces told the story of their despair. Mary's son, who had flown in from somewhere out of state, stood up and spoke on behalf of the family. She was a mother. She was a sister. She was loved. Each word penetrated more deeply. I wanted to call out to them to tell them the truth, but I couldn't. Stan was there too. He sat quietly in the back and did not speak. When I was brought into the courtroom, our eyes met for a brief moment. I hope the sadness I saw was because of what happened to Mary and not because he thought I was the one who had done it to her. The judge handed down the sentence coldly, stating that it was his wish that I never saw the light of day again. When he said the word treatment, his voice was dripping with contempt. Afterwards, I was taken back to the MWPD to wait on an open bed at the hospital. That night, instead of being placed in my own cell, I was placed with some of the other inmates some of which obviously knew that I was a former officer. I escaped that night with only a bruised ego and some scrapes on my fingers, but there was was apparently not enough for the MWPD. The next night, I was assaulted by two other inmates, oh no, we're getting Jeffrey Dahmered, and came out with a busted nose and a black eye. I was finally moved back into my own cell. After about a week or so, I was transported by the Palo Pinto County Sheriff's Office to the facility. I arrived in early afternoon in my jumper and shackles after what seemed like about a three-hour drive, the sun beaten down from the cloudless sky. The compound was rather large and surrounded by what looked to be about 15-foot fence that was curved inwards at the top to prevent those from inside from climbing out. There were guard towers on both ends of the fence, but I couldn't tell if they were manned or not. The deputies had called ahead and the gate was open for us. Is this prison? I thought to myself as we entered. I wondered for a moment if hearing had been, uh, if the hearing had been a farce and this was in fact not a mental facility. I wouldn't put it past anyone in that godforsaken town. We drove by several parking lots, large buildings, and outdoor space before stopping at the hospital itself. 
Inside, we entered what looked to be an office and spoke with the woman inside. She clicked around on a computer for a moment and then picked up a phone and called someone. Saying, I'm in. <laughs> 627533 is here. General Mills. <laughs> she said General Wells. A white man, uh, a white man? No! The white man. <laughs> a man in white scrubs arrived from the back uh, several minutes later. The deputies unlocked the shackles on my hands and feet and turned me over to the man. The man. Welcome to Smithfield, he said, grinning through yellow teeth. Are you ready to get to work? Smithfield is not the actual name of the facility, but for the sake of privacy, this is how I will, ah, this is how I will refer to it. I only stared, studying him. The men were short and overweight, probably 5'6", with short black hair that pressed against his scalp, cleanly parted. His name tag said Brian. Uh, one of those, eh? Suited yourself. You can talk now or later. Your choice. His voice remained upbeat, but there was something else underneath. The man led me through the door he had come from, back into the belly of the beast. We passed several rooms on either side. The place appeared to be busy, with nurses and other employees hurrying about their business. At the end of the hall was a door that required a keycard. He pulled off his belt and slid it through. The light turned green and the door clicked. We walked down a second hallway. The walls were painted cinder block, were painted cinder block, okay, rather than drywall, and the doors were the heavy kind, the glass windows fortified by crisscross bars. We passed what appeared to be a mess hall with a kitchen attached. There were many halls that branched off from each other, and I was unable to keep up in my head with exactly where in the building we were. We passed through another secure door uh, bearing a steel plate that read Unit E before stopping in front of one of the heavy doors. Here we are, home sweet home. He was still grinning. He unlocked the door with a key and showed me in. The room was bigger uh, than my cell at the MWPD, but not by much. There was a bed and a small desk with a metal chair, no windows. The fluorescent lights, much like the ones that lit the hall, cast the room in a hollow and artificial light. You'll be by yourself for now. There are some clothes and shoes on the bed. Dinner is at six. He paused, then continued. He had stopped grinning. I want to make myself clear. You don't run the show here. I do. Got it? He looked me up and down. I don't care if you were a cop before. You're nobody here. With that, he was gone. The heavy door slammed behind him, and I was alone. I awoke to the sound of a voice over the loudspeaker in the hall. I had lied down and must have been passed out. I stood up and peered through the window on the door. An orderly was making his way down the hall, opening the doors and letting the other people out of their cells. I counted six coming out of the cell that was directly across from me. He finally made it to mine. You must be the new guy. I'm Alex. Welcome to Smithfield. Please follow me. This orderly was taller and thinner, with a receding hairline and a broad face. He looked to be a bit older than Brian. I liked him a little bit better already. Why am I in a cell by myself? I asked. Everyone is placed in a solo cell until they are evaluated and determined to be mentally stable. Sometimes it takes some time before you can stay with the others. He took us back to the dining area, which was already filling with dozens of people lining up to get their food. I grabbed the tray and was eventually served. Chicken, beans, broccoli, and cornbread. I sat down at the table by myself. The beans were cold, but I didn't care. At the table next to me, one of the other patients was babbling about something. 
The guy sitting next to him took a handful of beans from his plate and dumped them on the first guy's head. <laughs> a brawl ensued, which ended with some security guards restraining both men and physically removing them from the room. The rest of dinner was uneventful. Hell yeah, dude. Let's have a bean bash. <laughs> After dinner, Alex found me and asked me to follow him to the psychologist's office, which I did. Good evening. My name's Caroline. She had a genuine smile. You don't have to call me doctor. I'm a psychologist here, and I'm, my job is to evaluate your needs and tailor a therapy plan that works for you. Tell me a bit about yourself and how you got here. She had to do some coaxing, but eventually I told her my entire story. The same story I told from the beginning. She took notes as I spoke, legs crossed and glasses on the tip of her nose. She was a bit older than me, but good looking. Her blouse was buttoned to the top and the skirt was knee length. But I had to, but I have to admit my mind still raced with thoughts about her slowly uncrossing her legs. Oh baby. I was pretty sure she noticed me looking. Yes, yeah, she did. She was the first person who had been nice to me in quite some time and I think I was desperate for attention. I begged her to help me get out. It's always the hardest at the beginning, she said. Part of my job is to help you understand what has happened to you, what you've done, and how that has affected others. I hope to identify the underlying factors which may have led to your psychotic episode. What is this turns into fucking the Joker and Harley Quinn? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's not actually <laughs> insane, though. Isn't he, though? No. Nah, he's good. Your treatment may involve medicine, individual and group therapy, as well as other treatment mod modalities. But I'll just be involved with your therapy part. You'll find some paper on the desk in your room. We find that a blank page often helps patients open up about how you're feeling. I must have screwed my face up when she said patience. Yes, patience. Our goal is to get you back to functioning normally so you can rejoin society as a productive citizen. Don't think of this as a sentence, but rather an opportunity to repair whatever was broken. I open up about the dullness and the depression that had set in after my incident at the Norwood Hospital. When I mention it, the stone cold look on her face bellied with the knowing belied. In, uh, belied, sorry, the knowing in her eyes. But what did she know? I also told her about the night terrors. She had mentioned several types of medication that I would be starting on in the morning. When our meeting was over and I had to leave her, I felt like the only color left in the world had bleached out. When I finally made it back to the room, it felt like midnight, but I knew it wasn't nearly that late. I could already tell uh, time would move differently here. Without windows, you're so oblivious to the outside world that it may as well not even exist. There were no clocks either, from what I could tell, although most of the employees appeared to have watches. I had heard that casinos don't have clocks on the gambling floor so that people lose themselves in the games. Maybe there was a similar reason for it here. Suddenly, my heart froze in my chest. I crept over to the door and pressed my ear against the glass. There it was again. Someone was screaming. I listened intently for a while. There were moments of silence followed by the intense screams. It sounded like someone was pleading. And then it was silent again. I backed away from the door as the reality of the situation finally set in. Were those the treatment modalities the doctor had mentioned? Jesus Christ, what was this place? For a moment, my mind flashed back to the Veteran Affairs Building and the image of the doctor in his white coat who had forced the old man to impale his own hand. My mind started spinning, and I began to get nauseated. I sat down at the small metal desk and tried to concentrate on the mechanical whirl of the air vent above my head. On the desk were several sheets of paper and a single mechanical pencil. I laid my arms on the desk to grab the pencil and felt the desk shake a bit. 
I shook it some more, then got down on my knees to find out what was causing it. Under the leg nearest on the right, I found a small piece of paper folded into a tiny square and colored black to match the rubber on the bottom of the leg. I pulled it out and shook the desk again. It didn't rock anymore. I sat back down, fiddling with the paper, and then eventually unfolding it completely. Upon it, carefully written in block letters, were only five words and what looked like a signature. You will never get out. M. Welcome to Smithfield, indeed. Nice. Who is M? I, I, I'm sure we're going to find out, but also at the same time, uh, does it matter? Because he sounds fucked beyond all regards. Well, I mean, he could maybe rejoin society one day if he plays by the rules. How long does one have to pretend to oh, be normal? in order time. to get out of a situation like this I mean, years I, with a murder sentence with murder sentence yeah, years at least I feel like you have to do at least 15 maybe, maybe 13 if, back if then really though good. is this a back then like when was this I think this? so this was like 70s 80s I don't I don't think it was 70s 80s I just think pre 2000s okay hmm. maybe I don't know I don't remember them mentioning flip phones or you know specific dates actually anyway the next morning at breakfast one of the other patients came and sat beside me her auburn hair and multitude of reddish freckles would prove to be proper precursors to her personality you must be new i haven't seen you here before she said welcome to smithfield she deepened her voice and straightened her back obviously mocking the way the orderly just said it welcome to smithfield she broke into a smile and a moment later we were both laughing i think it was the first time i laughed in at least a year i'm sarah by the way Nice to meet you, Sarah. I looked back down at my plate. I wasn't exactly in the mood for chit-chat. How long have you been here? Yesterday. You? Six months or so. I got transferred here from the other Smithfield campus. Her face soured like she was remembering. What for? She hesitated. I, uh, well, I kind of stabbed someone. Her what gaze happens. drifted off, then snapped back. Stupid bitch stole my tampons. Oh, definitely So happens. I had to make her bleed. She said it very matter-of-factly, like what she had done was out of her control. I guess she saw the reaction on my face. I'm bipolar, she said. And ADHD, and some other stuff, but don't worry, I'm usually nice. Just don't fuck with me. <laughs> I looked for a smile on her face, but didn't find one. Where did you come from? She extended you over several syllables. Where did you come from? Mineral Wells, Texas, I said. She reached her hand over and placed it on my forearm, and I noticed two of her fingers were black and blue. Mineral Wells, her voice was shaky. Jesus Christ, man. She looked around the room and straightened up, trying to act like she wasn't talking to me. I was a police officer. They say I uh, killed someone, cut him up, but I didn't. Shit, 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 she was saying it under her breath, looking down at her plate. I can't talk to you. You'll, you'll never get out. Everyone knows. There was a loud clang, and both of us looked up, startled. Brian was standing at the end of the table with his baton in his hands. Sarah, what have I told you about talking to the new patients? His voice was sickly sweet, almost like he was talking to a child. I wasn't doing anything, I promise. I, di I didn't know. Her eyes were wide with fear, and she placed her hands in her lap. Brian grabbed her by the hair and pulled her up to her feet. Her tray crashed to the floor, sending food flying in all directions. He looked over at me. Don't mind her. Sarah has a fanciful imagination. She's working on it, aren't you, Sarah? He dragged her away from the table and out of the room. I wouldn't see her again for a month, at least. I looked around the room, but no one had been watching. All of the other patients had their heads down, silently chomping away. 
After breakfast, I met a nurse, Jamie. She was older, probably in her 50s, extremely kind. I followed her out of the building and into a room, into another building that looked like a classroom with tables arranged in a circle. I heard one of the patients speaking to the group. It was obviously a group therapy session. Almost every day after school, starting in sixth grade, a young woman was speaking, her face streaked with tears. The weird part is, I still loved him. Isn't that horrible? I always felt like it was my fault, like I had been too cute or let him on in some way. The group leader brought a box of tissues. How did this make you feel? She asked tenderly. The girl sniffled. Dirty. Broken. She was sobbing. I sat and pretended to listen, but my mind eventually wandered back to my own childhood, and thankfully it had nothing to do with like this young woman's. I had a uh, great family. My dad had been in the military, my mother was a marketing executive. They both worked hard to provide my brother and I with everything we ever needed. We weren't rich, but we were loved. It was one thing I could be thankful for despite my current, sir- my current situation. Situation. Back at the main building after the session, Jamie showed me to a nurse's station. The nurse inside the window handed over three small paper cups, each with a pillow inside. Jamie had walked inside the station and grabbed my chart. These are your meds, she explained. You'll take them every day at nine and three. You're also going to be getting a sleeping pill at night for the sleep disturbances if you need it. We'll check your mouth to make sure you swallow them. If you refuse to take them or get caught holding them in your mouth, you will be forcibly administered intravenously. And you don't want that. Trust me. What are they? I looked at them suspiciously. And she looked at the chart. One is a low-level antipsychotic. One is a benzo. And the other... She flipped a page. The other is a tricyclic antidepressant. It'll also help with sleep. You may feel groggy at first with some of the other side effects, but you will get used to them in time. When I didn't move, she smiled and said, Bottoms up now, dear. Other side effects. My skin crawled. Not to mention the fact that I was taking an antipsychotic for a psychosis I didn't have. However, I do admit that I was warming up to the idea of the other meds. If they can help me sleep or forget, I would be grateful. I took them all. It says here that you were speaking to Sarah this morning at breakfast. Don't mind her. It would do you well to stay as far away from her as possible. She's a very troubled young lady. Wow, got to her that fast, I thought. She walked back to the nurse's station and Alex walked out. Alex will take you outside now. We walked back out the same door we had gotten, we had used to get to the group therapy building, then veered off to the left into an open area within the compound. I noticed some outdoor tables, some of which had built-in chess and checkers and what looked like a bocce ball set. Several patients were milling about. This is your outdoor area. If you behave yourself and attend all your classes, treatment appointments, you can earn time out here. If you're combative or injure another patient, you'll just lose this privilege, often for months at a time. Some of our patients haven't seen sunlight in years. He looked around. I'm going to smoke now. (laughs) Alex leaned against one of the buildings and pulled out a pack of cigarettes, and on the wall next to him was a sign that said no smoking on premises in large red block letters. Nice. You're not going to bust me, are you? He joked as I walked over. So how long have you been here? I asked him. Ten years this fall. He looked into the cloudless sky. Smithfield has been pretty good to me. Decent hours. Decent pay. A lot of the people here really care about the patients and their well-being. I wasn't sure if I could trust Alex or not at this point, but I was willing to take a chance. I wanted to find out as much as I could about Smithfield and seemed like the type of person I needed to get to know here. What about Brian? He furrowed his brow. 
After years of dealing with psychopaths and murderers, some people end up developing some of the same issues as the people they're caring for. Brian is one of them. There are others. There's a ton of bad shit that goes on here. Stuff that I don't want any part in. I started to ask more, but he shut me down. You'll find out soon enough. We can talk then. Out here is uh, not the best place. Always people watching. And with that, he walked off to finish his cigarette. All of a sudden, I was very dizzy. The meds were kicking in. I found a place in the shade and sat down with my back against a tree. It felt like a weight had been placed on the top of my head, and it was boring down through my skull and into my brain. It would explode any minute, surely, leaving bits and pieces strewn across the grass for someone to clean up, just like Sarah's spilled plate of food. I must have dozed off because the next thing I remember is Alex gently pulling me up by the arm. That's how the rest of the day went. I vomited after lunch, took more meds at three, was worthless in my session with Dr. Caroline. That night after dinner, there was a knock at my door. It was Brian. Come with me, was all he said. Where are we going? I asked nervously. He didn't answer. He grabbed me by the arm and led me into the hall, and for a half a moment I considered fighting back but thought better of it. I was still reeling from the 3 p.m. meds and simply didn't have enough strength or willpower. Brian wasn't fit by any means, but he was larger than me. He could certainly overpower me in a fight, especially in my condition. We walked down several hallways and then through a keycard door labeled Surgical. There were multiple rooms off of the hall within, but I couldn't see through any of the windows. They'd all been blacked out. We finally stopped in front of a door. Brian tapped twice on the window and the door was open from the inside. The room inside was large, well-lit, filled with equipment, most of which I don't recognize. My eyes were sensitive to the light, so I half-closed them and looked down at my feet, and I noticed the floor was the same as in the hallway, except there were several drains built into it at regular intervals throughout the room. Good evening, a voice said. I raised my head, and the fleeting images of two men wearing white doctor's coats merged into one. I'm Dr. Summers. He was tall, pale-skinned, with short gray hair cut close to the scalp. There was something immediately odd about his face. The parts were all there, but they didn't seem to work together properly, as if each of the pieces had been assembled separately with no regard for the other. There was an inordinate amount of space between his upper lip and the bottom of his nose, making his face appear longer than it should. One eye was an icy shade of blue, yet the other was a bit darker. He was repulsive, but not ugly. My eyes simply couldn't focus on his face for long without feeling I needed to look somewhere else. Peter the Fisher. other... <laughs> the other orderly who had opened the door closed it and took his place beside the doctor. Come and lie down, he growled. His teeth were the largest and whitest I had ever seen. When he opened his mouth, the lights reflected off them like a mirror. He looked vaguely familiar, but I couldn't recall where I remembered him from. Brian led me over to a metal chair and sat me down. Rough leather straps attached to the frame were tightly cinched around my wrists and ankles. A canvas strap held my back against the chair as Brian manually reclined it. I hope you are comfortable, Dr. Summers said. He paced around my chair as he spoke. My mission at Smithfield is simple. I want to cure people. The notion that mental institutions want their patients to stay crazy is misguided and makes no sense economically. If we never cured anyone, no one would pay for their loved ones to be treated here. 
Curing people is not as easy as it sounds. It takes time, money, and ingenuity. Often it takes unconventional methods, the type which are not reported in the Sunday news. But we can't go testing new methods on governor's daughters now, can we? That would not do. If we made a mistake and lost someone, the repercussions would be profound. He leaned over my chair from behind me, and I found his upside-down visage to, even, to be even more unnerving. He smiled. All this to say you are doing a great service to your fellow man. I hope you never forget that. Why? The ball gag shoved oh, into my mouth, prevented me from saying anything further. And if I throw up right now, I will choke on my vomit. So I immediately thought to myself, my heart was pounding, but I tried to slow my breathing as much as possible. Brian started an IV into my right arm as the other orderly hooked me up to a heart monitor. I heard the familiar blip, blip, blip when it was set up. I connected some other wires to my head and chest as well. Start him at 1cc, I heard Dr. Summers say, and Brian opened a cabinet near my feet and started preparing a needle. You should know that you may feel like you are drowning, he said, leaning over me again. Try not to fight it, or it will only get worse. I promise I will not give you an amount that will kill you, at least not yet. Otherwise, we are all wasting our time here, right? It's true. Dr. Summers took the needle and slowly injected the substance into my wrist. I could feel it moving through my veins, up my arm, cold and fiery all at once. I yelled as loudly as my gag would allow, but I knew it was no use as I gave in and let it take me. The doctor bent down and whispered in my ear, You will never get out. My body convulsed violently as the burning substance reached my heart. I was no longer in control. My body pulsed and writhed as if caught in a fire. My lungs felt as if they had been wrapped in duct tape. I knew deep inside I was still breathing, but my mind told my body I wasn't. I gasped for air over and over and over again. My arms and legs beat against the chair in violent bursts. I'm not sure how long it lasted, but finally, the convulsions stopped. Dr. Summers had put something else in the ivy, something that had stopped them. The pressure on my lungs was slowly dissipating. He removed the gag, and I breathed as deeply as humanly possible. My entire body was covered in sweat, and my wrists and ankles were raw and bleeding, my face raw with tears. Good man, Dr. <laughs> Summers said. One of the orderlies chuckled. Tell me, how do you feel? Considering how I had felt moments earlier, I actually felt relatively good. Whatever he had given me in the second time had almost completely reversed the devastation the first had caused. But I didn't tell him that. Instead, I gathered all the phlegm in my mouth and spit as hard and as far as nice. I could. I felt a lightning bolt of pain in my left hand and cried out. Brian had brought his baton down so hard that it had broken my ring and pinky fingers. That's not being a good sport, Dr. Summers chastised, but we shall take the fight out of you one way or another. Not tonight, though. I only wanted to give you a taste of what is to come. Goodbye for now. All right, Dr. Summers is pretty cool. Brian and the other orderly removed the restraints and helped me to my feet. I couldn't stand, so they had to half-drag, half-carry me all the way back to my room. They threw me onto the bed unceremoniously. I cradled my injured hand, which they hadn't even bothered to bandage. Brian walked out of the room, but the other orderly held back. You don't recognize me, do you? 
he said, grinning with those massive teeth. Should I? I asked. You should. Although I look a lot different now. Doc fixed me up. He reached into his pocket, pulling out his name tag and putting it in place. It said, Victor. Aha, he said when he saw my face. Now you recognize me. You arrested me for trespassing when I had nowhere else to go. You cops are all the same. You think you could do whatever the fuck you want and not suffer the consequences? Well, fuck you. I could see white foam had formed at the corner of his, corners of his mouth. Let's see who's the god now. Not you, Victor, you prick. <laughs> yeah, fucking prick. The whole time, like, are we supposed to know Victor? Is, is that a name um, that I'm supposed it's a, to remember? It's alluding to something. It was part three of the previous series. Hmm. I certainly don't remember it. Sorry, Victor. I guess. Sorry, Victor, you're forgettable as fuck. I guess we're gods now. Yeah, I guess I'm the <laughs> god now. I miss the ghosts. Can I get a ghost, please? Can I get some ghosts? Maybe, maybe that ghost can show me some Victor's bones. <laughs> At breakfast one morning, about a month into my commitment, a young woman shuffled into the mess hall, her auburn hair dirty and matted on her head, a blank stare on her face. It was Sarah. She didn't even look in my direction, even though she had to pass right by my table to get her tray. I could smell her from where I was sitting, and her hands and clothes were filthy and sweat-stained. She obviously had not had a shower in quite some time. I hadn't seen her at all since Brian had dragged her out of the mess hall, kicking and screaming. I watched as she ate, forked the plate, then to mouth, two to three chews, swallow, drink of water, then repeat. She never looked away from her plate. The fiery girl with the reddish freckles was gone. Somebody had broken her. I had learned a lot during the previous month, and it didn't surprise me that something had happened to her. Let's back up. I had wrestled with a very important decision the morning after Dr. Summers had injected me. My wrists and ankles were raw and bleeding, and my chest was bruised, and I was sure I had two broken fingers. Hell, my soul itself even hurt. When I met with Dr. Caroline that morning, I knew she would ask about my injuries. I had been painfully honest with her up until that point, but was slowly realizing that the truth hadn't served me or my friends very well. Where had it gotten me? Where had it gotten Mary? Caroline was good, uh, I knew that much for sure, and was fairly certain she was not privy to the experimental aspects of my treatment. She would certainly look into what had happened, and that would not only endanger me further, but could possibly put her at risk as well. That was not a price I was willing to let her pay on my behalf. Not again. So at therapy that morning, I told her that I had been uncooperative and had to be restrained, resulting in my injuries. I'm not sure if she had, or if she was actually skeptical at first, or whether it was my imagination, but I was convincing enough uh, that by the time our session ended, I had no doubt she believed me, and she vowed to help me tackle the issues that I was dealing with. I'd finally realized that at Smithfield, as with Mineral Wells, there was a game to be played. The rules was already set. Breaking the rules wouldn't get me anywhere, so I would have to find a way to play with them in order to win my life back. After Alex had seen my injuries, and I had confided in him about what had happened, he was the only one I believed I could have told the truth. He had finally agreed to talk, uh, talk to me late one night in my room. I remembered his caveat very well. I'm not willing to go down that rabbit hole with you. 
he had said. But I am willing to give you information so you can attempt to get out of here on your own. He explained the process the hospital used to determine whether you were fit to remain a patient here. By law, Smithfield held patients who had been previously found to be unfit to stand for trial for horrific crimes. Alex said that although the judge had determined that I would serve a 40-year max term, that wasn't really something Smithfield considered. That was only done to set the maximum amount of time I was legally able to be held. That was a relief. Smithfield would only continue to hold patients who were manif manifesting manifestly dangerous. A manifestly dangerous patient would be one who was not responding to treatment and needed to be confined to a maximum security hospital to protect themselves and the public. Conversely, a patient who was not manifestly dangerous would be one who was a properly responding patient to treatment and was stable enough to be treated in a minimum security hospital. Smithfield's other Krampus was a minimum security. That's where Sarah had been transferred from after she stabbed another patient. I knew at that point that I had to do whatever to take, whatever it took to pass my review and be transferred out of Smithfield. There were a couple of roadblocks that stood in the way. First, to be transferred, five medical professionals from the review board would need to determine that I was no longer dangerous. These reviewers would consider document evidence from the medical professional that had been treating me. This included Dr. Summers. As soon as Alex explained this, I immediately understood what Dr. Summers had really meant by, you will never get out. He could put whatever he wanted to those reports. The second issue was that there had to be some history of treatment before a transfer would be granted. I wouldn't be getting out immediately, but I had already figured that out. Alex believed that if Dr. Summers was performing experimental treatments, they were being done outside of the approval of the hospital. It is pretty obvious that uh, he would have been fired long ago if they knew what was going on. It appeared to have been happening as long as Alex had been at Smithfield. He had cared for dozens of patients who had received curious injuries for which there was no logical explanation. But he was never sure exactly who or what was causing them. He guessed Brian was involved somehow, which I had confirmed with him. Uh, I asked if he knew anything about Victor, but he said he never saw him doing any regular rounds. So he must have been brought on specifically for helping Dr. Summers. I thought back to the day I had arrested Victor at the Norwood Hospital. He was addicted to meth. Oh, that guy. Okay. Had smelled like other shit, and his teeth were black and decaying. The chief of the MWPD had personally told me to get him out of there that night. Why then? Why did he have so much interest in Victor? Doc fixed me up, Victor had said in my room the night before. My guess was that Dr. Summers had needed someone who he could trust. Someone that would do his dirty work without asking too many questions. In return, Victor had gotten a job, a new look, and the opportunity to exact his vengeance on those who had oppressed him. And the MWPD uh, facilitated everything. He also told me about something that had happened the day before. I had arrived at Smithfield that he found dis oh, I had arrived at Smithfield that he found disturbing. A young woman named Michelle had been found in her room hanging by a bedsheet from the doorknob. She had only been at Smithfield for a short time and was one of the patients who had a mysterious marks of bruises on them, but nothing in her record suggested that she was suicidal. In fact, she was progressing towards all of her treatment goals and had a review board hearing coming up soon. It simply didn't make sense, and combined with the unexpected injuries, Alex was highly suspicious about her cause of death. Death. <laughs> I asked him what he had to do with me, and he said that she was from Mineral Wells as well. Also, the reason I came to Smithfield the day I did, her room had opened up. She was M from the note under the desk. 
I asked him and Sarah, wondering if she had any mysterious marks or bruises, but she was not one of his patients, so he couldn't tell me anything about her. That had been enough for the night. I promised to keep his information in confidence, and we parted ways. During that first month, I had slowly gotten used to my meds. They had been reevaluated after I had complained about how they made me feel, and eventually I was on a schedule and dosage that worked for me. The dizziness was the only fleeting that I and didn't bother me most of the time. The tiredness and constant dry mouth were things that I had just learned to live with. Most importantly, the depression was really beginning to fade and I was sleeping through the night, although my dreams felt more real than they ever had. In many of them, I found myself standing over Mary's blood-soaked body, the kitchen cleaver in my hand. I'll admit, some days when I woke, I wasn't sure what had really happened that night. Had I actually killed her? The day that Sarah emerged from what I could only guess was solitary confinement was the first day I started telling Dr. Caroline the truth about my situation. Spurred in part by the fact that I had a clear mind for the first time in quite a while. I started slowly at first. She had asked me to explain the whispers. I heard at the Veterans Affair building again and I casually mentioned that I was probably so stressed that stressed out that I created them myself because there certainly wasn't anyone else in the building. She was generally excited for me and considered it a major breakthrough in my treatment. I was beginning to play the game, but I realized I couldn't give her everything she wanted at once. If I did a 180 and reneged on everything I had said up to that point, she wouldn't have believed me and it may have even uh, been a setback for me. No, I resolved to go about it slowly and methodically. I also began to give Dr. Summers what he wanted. I no longer spit, fought, or cried out during the nights that I was strapped to that chair. The less I struggled, the less bloody I was afterwards. It was obvious Brian and Victor got their jollies from torturing me, so the less I fed that hunger, the better. It had been difficult to maintain that point of view the first night Dr. Summers had introduced me to electroconvulsive therapy. Yes, it is the same therapy that became popular in mental institutions in the 1940s, except these days it's performed under general anesthesia and with a no enough voltage to minimize any major complications. However, it's only supposed to be used for the suspense, schizophrenia, major depressive disorder, or as a last result when all other treatments have failed. There was enough patient in my there was enough there was another patient in my unit that was being treated with the ECT that I had spoken with on occasion, which is how I knew about it. I hadn't known him before so I didn't have a frame of reference for how his personality may have changed. However, no matter what he was like before, I would never want to be the zombie that he had become. When we spoke, it was like he was half asleep, taking several seconds to respond to questions I would ask. Even though he was looking straight at me, his eyes were lifeless and droopy, reminding me of stroke victims I had seen in the past. There was simply no life in him, as if everything that made him him had been stripped away leaving only a shell that walked and talked and looked like a human but was anything but. Sometimes when we spoke, he had no memory of our previous conversations. After I was strapped down, I was given a strong muscle relaxant intravenously to keep me from hurting myself, but wasn't lucky enough to get any anesthesia, which means I would be awake throughout the entire procedure. ECT works by inducing a seizure in the patient which somehow is supposed to stimulate the frontal lobe and lessen the symptoms associated with some psychiatric illnesses. Dr. Summers placed electrodes on my right temple and turned on the machine they were attached to. 
I couldn't see it, but knew it was on because it hummed like a goddamn generator. And it was connected to me, for Christ's sake. When the first shock went through my brain, it felt like I imagined being struck by lightning would feel. Every muscle in my body tensed. I felt like I was collapsing in on myself. The seizures didn't last long, but they were horribly painful, causing me to bite down so hard on my gag that I chipped a tooth. Over and over again they came, until it was so tired I could barely keep my eyes open. I had to be carried back to the room that night, too. Luckily, he's not shocking me enough, often enough to cause any major lasting damage, as I don't experience much of the retrograde amnesia that he warned me may be a side effect. There are some things in my past that I can't recall when I know I should, but most of my short-term memories appears to be still intact. Still, at some point, it will likely destroy me. Time's ticking. About three months after I'd been at Smithfield, I got a lesson on why many people deserve to be in places like this, often for the rest of their lives. Since I am towing the line and working towards my treatment goes, I often get my time outside in the morning. On that particular morning, I was playing a game of bocce ball with a couple other patients. The goal of bocce is to throw a heavy colored ball and get it as close uh, as possible to a smaller white ball that has been thrown previously. Another patient and I were using the green balls and two other were using the red balls. When it was the other team's turn, the guy whose turn it was threw his ball a little too hard, which knocked his teammate's ball further away from the white ball, causing them to lose points and us to win the game. When he realized what had happened, the guy snapped and elbowed his teammates right in the nose, making it explode in a splash of crimson and knocking him to the grass. He picked up one of the bocce balls and started smashing it into the guy's head over and over again. I jumped up from where I was sitting and ran to get the elderly who was just outside of saw dealing with another issue. What I saw when, he, when we turned the corner again horrified me. And it's honestly hard to even write it here. It was not the first time I was glad to be numb. The irate patient had knocked his teammate unconscious and had dug his fingers so far into the guy's eye sockets that he popped both of his eyes out. God damn. They were sitting in freshly mowed grass, staring straight at me. Blue D. That's a bash, baby. That is... Indeed. I, I like bocce ball a lot. This is a good game. Oh, bocce's fun. I mean, I don't like it when I get my head smashed in, but... No. <laughs> no, I don't think you do. No, no, that, that, that's not for me, uh, personally. Who's saying this line? need to figure it out. Alex. Out of the question. If I do this for you and someone finds out, I'll lose my job. I already told you I'm not willing to risk it. I've helped out my patients in the past, but I've never helped smuggle in a cell phone, Alex said as he finished changing the sheets on my bed. He stuffed the old ones into a canvas bag and turned to leave. Wait, I'll pay you. I have money saved up. He stopped without turning around. I need some contact with the outside world, Alex. You know I'm not crazy, and I promise I won't screw this up. He dropped the bag and turned around. Okay, let's say I bring it in for you. How are you going to get it in here? And where's the money going to come from? I have a friend who will bring both. I just need you to get the phone in. I was talking about Stan, but I had no idea whether he would help me or not. Please, Alex. I tried to sound as desperate as possible. I'll think about it, he said, turning to leave again. I didn't push it any further. I saw Alex throughout the next week, but he never mentioned what we talked about. I had honestly given up hope until Alex dropped by my room one afternoon during free time. He sat down on my bed. Okay. If I do this, we're doing it my way. Anything you want. 
you can only use the phone in your room, nowhere else. I'll bring it to you at the beginning of my shift and take it back at the end. No pictures, no phone calls. You can use the Wi-Fi the nurses use. I'll get you the password. If you get caught with it, I'll disavow everything and report that I saw you talking to someone at the fence. You'll lose all your outside time at the very least. His eyes said more than his words could. I could guess what some of the other consequences would be. Also, I want five grand. <laughs> I had that much in my savings account, but didn't want to agree to his first offer. We went back and forth a couple times before he settled on 3500 Take it or leave it. Done, I said. Now I just had to get the phone and the money here. One afternoon, Alex let me use the phone in the nurse's stations when the other nurses were on break. I called the garage whose uniform Stan had been wearing the day we met. I had no idea if he worked there anymore, but it was the only shot I had. Luckily, Stan answered. We didn't have time to catch up, so I told him straight up what I needed. Since Alex would be physically bringing the phone in, Stan had no reason to refuse. He wouldn't be doing anything illegal, per se. Also, he wanted to help me in any way he could, because he knew I had no be business being in Smithfield. The money I promised him didn't hurt, either. He already knew where my apartment was. I just had to explain where my extra key and my phone were hidden. When the MWPD had allowed me to go home before being questioned, I took the opportunity to hide my cell phone, my wallet, and some other valuables, just in case something happened. I made one other call to a friend at the bank, authorizing Stan to withdraw the money. Since my case had not been reported in the news, very few people knew what had actually happened. This teller was not one of them, thankfully. Stan needed two weeks to get everything together and to take off work in order to make the long drive from Mineral Wells. I wished him luck. In the meantime, to take my mind off of things, I concentrated on working my hardest at group therapy with Dr. Caroline. I had been at Smithfield for about four and a half months when I made my biggest breakthrough yet. Keep going, Dr. Caroline said, putting her notebook down and scooting her chair closer to mine. She placed her hands in her lap and looked me dead in the eye. Her plump lips were red and pursed, and her eyes begged for the truth. Tell me what happened. I must have killed her, I finally said. I both knew it was untrue and thought it could be true at the same time. Either way, I was amazed that the words had escaped my lips, and I looked down at my feet. You're doing great, she said, reassuring me by placing her hands on mine. Well, the murder gets her off. The forensics showed that there was no way Mary could have done it to herself. There was too much blood loss. Oh, that, that was him saying that. That was him saying that. <laughs> I continued, but she was possessed, I thought. There was also no evidence that anyone else had been in the house, just... The only logical explanation was that I killed her. I just don't remember it. And the ghost, this, ghost. she started looking down at her notepad. Mariana? What about her? Ghosts are for children's stories and crazy people, I said. Aye. They aren't real. It was both a betrayal and a confession. The look on my face sold it. I think that's enough for today. Great work, she said, pulling her hands back. You've really been progressing well over the last three months, even if you started off slowly. If you keep this up, I think I'll be able to confidently tell the review board that you are as safe as they come. Maybe we can get you out of here, she smiled. Yeah, four months in. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Me just agreeing that, yeah, I probably killed a person. Yeah, you're perfectly Dr. Summer. safe. <laughs> Dr. Summers had other plans for me. I'm not sure if he had something Dr. Caroline had written in my file or not, but the night was my worst experience with the electroshock machine yet. 
After I was strapped down, I was injected with the muscle relaxer as usual, but this time there was something else mixed in. It only took a couple of moments before the room was spinning. I take that back, the room didn't exactly spin, as much as it melted. When Dr. Summers leaned over me this time, he looked like Johnny Depp's character on that iconic Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas poster. His face bent and contorted, his neck stretched like taffy. No sympathy for the devil. Keep that in mind, I thought. Buy the ticket, take the ride. So close to Barstool. This time, electrodes were attached to both sides of my head. Victor was on the dial this time, and when he turned the machine on, the pain was three times what I experienced before. The amount of the electricity that runs through you is directly proportional to the amount of damage it will cause, Dr. Summers had said with a smile. Two electrodes were better than one, in other words. That's what I, I was getting the full load. Hashtag full load. That's what I always say. Experiencing the train, experiencing the type of pain in the state I was in was something I imagined even Hunter S. Thompson couldn't have survived. But I did, somehow. Or I hoped at least most of me did. As I was laying there between rounds, I overheard Victor say something to Dr. Summers. My eyes were closed, and maybe he thought I had passed out. What? When do I get my time with the Mineral Wells girl? Sarah, Victor croaked. Dr. Summers may have been able to fix his appearance, but he hadn't fixed his vocal cords. Two things crossed my mind simultaneously. She's from Mineral Wells, too. And damn frog-sounding motherfucker. <laughs> I heard him grunt. I opened my eyes just enough to see Brian bringing his baton back down to his side. Dr. Summers was much quieter. He actually knew how to whisper. Whatever he had said appeased Victor. I can only imagine what his time with Sarah would entail. So I vowed then and there to get in touch with her and warn her somehow. Two days later, Alex was back in my room. Here you go, he said. He reached out his hand and showed me what it contained. A cell phone. My cell phone. How, how did you have this? I said, a blank stare on my face. He looked at me for a moment, trying to figure out what game I was playing. It's your phone, the one you paid me to bring you. Remember our deal? I didn't. I actually had no idea what he was talking about. I told him so. I think the look on my face convinced him I wasn't joking. He sat me down and explained what I had asked him to do, and as he talked, it slowly came back to me. Stan had come through. Alex was worried about my mental state and wanted to back out of everything, but I convinced him I understood what was going on and would keep my promises. This was the first time my short-term memory had been affected and it scared the shit out of me. It was as if someone had scooped the memory right out of my head, leaving a temporary hole. It has all come back to me now, but it worries me to think about what else might be missing. I saw Sarah at group therapy the next morning, and I had been following her so I could figure out her daily schedule ever since I overheard Victor. She ate breakfast with me and was in my group afterwards, but she was elsewhere for the rest of the day, and I needed to talk to her, and soon, so I could warn her about Victor. I hoped he hadn't already gotten to her. I didn't know her very well at all, really, but I wasn't going to let the miscreant get his hands on her if I could help it. I followed her out of the therapy again, as for the past two days trailing far enough behind her in the crowd of people so she didn't see me. I watched her walk out of the first building and into the outside area that separated the therapy building and the main hospital. She had stopped for a moment to speak to someone from the crowd passing her by. I took my chance. I grabbed her from behind, placed my left hand over her mouth so she couldn't scream, and pulled her around the corner of the building with my right arm out of sight of both doors. She bit down hard, catching the meaty part of my palm between her teeth. Damn it, I yelled, pushing her away and placing my body between her and where she wanted to go. What the fuck are you doing? She yelled, pushing the unkempt hair out of her face. She still had some spunk in her yet. Maybe she wasn't totally broken. 
We don't have much time. I'm trying to help you. Like you helped me last time. Talking to you got me a month in the hole, she said. I could see the fear in her eyes. I'm not going back there. Solitary? Why? Jesus, do I have to spell it out for you? You're from Mineral Wells, so am I. So is Michelle, the girl who just killed herself before you got here. There are others. I assume you've met Dr. Summers. She stepped forward and held her arms up to my face, palms in. I hadn't noticed before, but now I could see the scarring. I assumed her ankles were the same. There's some kind of deal, and he doesn't like us talking to each other. Jesus Christ, I thought. Millings, all over again. But I didn't have time to pontificate. I'd worry about that later. Sarah, look, I overheard Victor and Dr. Summers. I think he promised Victor something, and it has to do with you. He wants time with you. You have to watch out. That creepy fuck can try. I'll be ready for him. I'm leaving, she said, storming past me. Stay away from me. Sarah, wait. I made a half-assed att half attempt to grab her arm, but she was already gone. She would have to deal with Victor in her own way, by biting his cock off. How dry do you want it? How much teeth do you want in your blowjob? I'd say like 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> the revelation about the connection between Smithfield and the patients from Mineral Wells was one of the catalysts for my decision to start writing everything down. I wanted to tell my story, the real story, to anyone who would listen before I convinced myself it wasn't true, or the memory of it all was scooped from my brain. At the same time, it's hard to put yourself out there. I would likely have to admit I was posting from a mental institution, no one would believe me, but something happened that pushed me over the edge. I was watching television in one of the common rooms, and I saw a news report about a death in mineral wells. It had something to do with methamphetamine use, but the facts were such that I remember thinking, am I the only one who thinks this is odd? It made me think about another similar case, not of mine, which had happened several years ago. I remember it had been widely reported and caused a huge stir in the community. A young man had discovered his mother's dead body inside a freezer in their garage. The medical examiner ruled the cause of death to be a combination of methamphetamine toxicity and hypothermia. Even stranger, the investigation showed that she had crawled into the freezer herself. Had this woman literally been so high she decided the freezer would be a perfect place to rest? Or did someone or something suggest it to her? At the husband's subsequent trial for delivering the methamphetamine to her and inadvertently causing her death, he apparently was the one who filled the needle. He stated she had a history of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Ding, ding. She was the exact type of person susceptible to possession or suggestion by spirits. The curse of Mineral Wells had claimed another victim. Actually, there had been two victims. The husband was sentenced to serve two years for his part in her death, and I'm pretty sure he's in prison as we speak. I had been so busy with my treatment and my confessions to Dr. Caroline that I had almost forgotten that there were people dying horrible deaths in mineral wells and no one was doing anything to stop it. I had to do something, even if I couldn't get out. And that's when I found no sleep. It was the only place I knew where my story could have a chance of being believed. On April 27th of 2016, almost six months to the day since my first day at Smithfield, I made that first post. I had no idea it would be so well received, but I'm grateful. I needed to tell it, but more importantly, I need people to hear it. The public needs to know what's happening here, because I may not ever be able to get out to help fix it. You see, the day I started posting, I was looking forward to something. My review board hearing, which was set for the next Friday, May 6th of 2016. 
but when I reread the post I made that Friday, nine days later, I see that it is filed with so much sadness and despair. There will be no happy ending here. Unfortunately, life isn't always like that. It's dark, gruesome, unfair more often than we'd like to admit, and we have to live with the scars. There will be no justice for Mary, those children, or any victims of Mineral Wells, Texas. There will certainly be no justice for me. I'm sorry the post was so short and I acted so dramatically. My hopes were crushed that day. I hope you understand it was the day the review board found I was manifestly dangerous and should remain in maximum security treatment at Smithfield. Which explains why he finished it that way. Hmm. Alright, take it home. Fourteen days ago, I sat down with Dr. Caroline to hear the news. My heart was beating so hard I would have believed her if she said she had heard it. The review board met this morning, she said, looking down at her notepad. She almost always looked me in the eyes when she spoke to me. I had always loved her, that about her. I already knew something had gone wrong. They considered evidence from all of the healthcare professionals involved in your care. Your group therapy leader, Susan, wrote a glowing review on your behalf. All of the notes from the nurses were positive. As you know, I strongly advocated for your transfer to our minimum security branch, citing your willingness to take responsibility for your actions and the great progress you've made since I've been seeing you. But, she trailed off, Dr. Summers, he still believes you are too dangerous to be treated in a minimum security hospital. He cited multiple incidents that occurred during your treatment sessions. I'm sorry. My entire body had gone cold, chills ripping from the top of my head all the way down to my heels, but I didn't know what to say. I have some poll with two of the members of the review board. I'm going to attempt to appeal this on your behalf. It doesn't happen often, but since every other report was positive, there may be a chance. Please, don't give up hope. Even if they deny the appeal, we can submit your case again at a later date. I nodded. A later date. Okay. We'll do that. I'm sorry. I was crushed. I had learned the game and played by the rules, yet I had still lost. Because the game was rigged against me. It's always had been. I realized that I, if I didn't get out soon, I would most likely never get out with my sanity intact. I had to find a way to stop the electroconvulsive therapy before it destroyed me. Many scenarios flashed through my mind, including one in which I killed Dr. Summers and Victor in cold blood. <laughs> I had never done anything like that, never even considered it. I was a police officer, and for Christ's sakes, but I was seriously running out of options. I hastily made a, a post on no sleep and told myself that I had been, that it all had been for nothing. I wouldn't post any further. I began to collapse inwards. For the next few days, I didn't eat and couldn't sleep. The onset of deep depression had triggered the night terrors again. I dreamt that the walls were electrified and closing in on me and awoke with bloody fingers and nails ground into the roots. I'd always tried to claw my way out of the room. I went through the motions of daily life in the hospital, but the man that once had lived that life was gone. Four days after a review board meeting, I was in the mess hall for, uh, for dinner when the hospital alarm went off. I had never heard it go off before. A voice spoke over the loudspeaker. Alert. Code 11. This facility is on lockdown. Please remain where you are. Security to Unit E. The women's unit, I thought. I left my tray where it sat, bolting out of the room and down the hall to where Unit E connected to the main hospital wing. Before I made it to the heavy metal door, I could already hear the commotion. The door was open, being held by security guards as several nurses and orderlies rushed in. Other patients had begun gathering around the door as well. 
echoing down the hall of the unit. I could hear a voice shrieking in pain, deep and guttural. There was no mistaking it. It was Victor's. For a brief moment, the sea of people parted and I saw him lying on the floor, the top half of his body protruding from an open cell. His eyes shut tightly as, he, as we wailed. Uh, the bottom half of his body was inside the cell, but I could see a large pool of blood slowly itching its way into the hall. I wasn't sure whose it was. The sea of people surged and I lost sight of them. The alarm was still blaring and the nurses were yelling frantically. Pressure! Where is the tourniquet? Can you clamp it? Check the other patients! She's bleeding too! Get the patients out of here! I was pulled from behind and realized I was being led away by the security guards. I obeyed grudgingly, knowing I couldn't be any of help anyway. As I was being led away, I heard a shrill voice, a woman's, somehow rise above the din. At first, I thought she was crying, but I realized there was no pain in her voice. She was laughing. The next day, the entire hospital was above with rumors about what had happened. The victim and the perpetrator have both made statements that they were supposed to remain confidential, but incidents of this nature never stay quiet for long. That night, Victor had caught Sarah in her cell alone after dinner. According to her, he had hit her several times in the face, breaking her nose, before forcing her onto the bed. Sarah had not put up a fight. Instead, she told Victor that she had been fantasizing mm -hmm. about him. She allowed him to remove her pants and undergarments before she began sexually assaulting her from behind. <clears throat> that was when she reached under the pillow and removed a sharpened toothbrush she had hidden there for several days earlier. She had spun around and began stabbing Victor's exposed groin. When he screamed and tried to cover himself, she kept stabbing, puncturing his forearms and hands in the fury. He rolled off of her and onto the floor, but that didn't stop her for a moment. Several of her blows missed the mark and cut into his thigh, one puncturing his femoral artery. That's where all the blood came from. She had finally stopped, dropping the shank and screaming for help at the top of her lungs. The wound had been low enough on his leg that the staff was able to apply a tourniquet, which slowed the blood flow long enough to get Victor into surgery. Because of the quick actions of the staff and doctor, Victor's life was saved, although he had lost quite a bit of blood. His penis was almost severed, <laughs> but I heard it was able to be reattached in the emergency surgery. Whether he will gain full use of it again remains to be seen. Other than her nose, Sarah was uninjured. The blood that covered her had been mostly Victor's. The last words she had said to me rang in my head. I'll be ready for him. She certainly had been. The backlash began shortly after. After she was stabilized, Sarah was quickly transferred, but I'm not sure where. Possibly back to Smithfield's other campus where she had came from? <laughs> yeah, like they'd send you to minor after doing that. Victor was questioned by the hospital administration and then arrested for the sexual assault. In the statement he made, which was mostly rambling and incoherent, he talked about the experiments that he was helping Dr. Summers with, ones the hospital knew nothing about. I had interrogated enough people to understand his intention. He was hoping to leverage his dirt on Dr. Summers in order to return a better plea deal or sentencing agreement. No honor amongst thieves. I also heard the hospital launch an internal investigation into Dr. Summers' practices. I knew it to be true because all of my treatments with him had been stopped as of the date of the incident with Sarah. However, I seriously doubt it will amount to anything. News of a psychotic doctor would be a death sentence for the hospital when it came to future funding. Plus, those in power take care of their own. No, that issue would most likely be quietly slept under the rug, but I can rest easily if there is even a small chance of his sadistic reign coming to an end. As for me, the investigation provided an unintended benefit. 
This morning, I was called to Dr. Caroline's office. She was sitting in her chair, all made up as usual, her hands in her lap fidgeting uh, with her high heels tapping nervously on the ground. I sat down across from her as I had for close to seven months. She couldn't hold her excitement any longer. You're getting transferred, she said, handing me a single sheet of paper. It was a letter from the review board. I couldn't even bear to read it. What? How? The investigation. All because of Dr. Summer's recent cases are being scrutinized now, because his was the only negative report, the board considered doing a review. Uh, they reversed their decision. Also, since my two contacts were already looking at yours anyway, it will be one of the first to be processed. You could transfer out as early as Monday. She searched my face for a reaction. It's a weird feeling getting something you've worked really hard for but never truly believed you would ever get. It's almost as if you were afraid to believe it's true because you simply can't bear another heartbreak. Fool me twice and all that. Since you're cautiously hopeful, I didn't jump up and down and chat with Joy, but I got out of my seat and held my arms out for a hug. She didn't hesitate. I remember the brace that followed until the end of my days. I did some research on Smithfield's minimum security campus while I had the opportunity. I had no idea whether I would be able to bring my phone or whether I would have internet access there. Apparently it's been in operation for almost 100 years and it is said to be haunted. Nice. Let's get these ghosts I'm back. We're going there. <laughs> there are certain buildings where lights come on and off and doors open and close by themselves. It is reported that some of the patients that died in the hospital still roam the halls looking for respite. Uh, I don't know if those reports should be believed or not, but I do know it is much closer to Mineral Wells than where I am now. Either way, I'll take my chances there. To me, the living are far more terrifying than the dead. Now I'm sitting at a small metal desk in my room, concentrating on the mechanical whir on the air vents above my head as the desk wobbles a bit beneath the weight of my arms. My last order of business at Spitfield had been an important one. Moments ago, I ripped the blank piece of paper sitting in front of me in half and began coloring one side of it black. Once it was filled in, I flipped it over and began to write, You will get out. There is always hope. The end. I mean, we know it's not the end because it continues into a third a third part that we're going to read, but I appreciate uh, the realism of this section. It's a cha- it's a appreciated change um, when it comes to like how his narrative has been handled thus far. <laughs> the realism is a welcome departure from the first chapter, which very quickly like didn't do that it very much said like there's some in the water fucking ghosts murder people think it's helping them but it ain't helping them conspiracies illuminati 666 air horn so like for this one to be much more contained a little bit more personal why six afraid of six you know six 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 what? <laughs> but I, yeah. you know, that's that's how I felt about it. It was it was short. It was sweet. It was to the point. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, gave you that nice idea of prison life. It was no like Empire Strikes Back. It didn't do anything I didn't expect it to do. But it um, it continued. It pushed. It carried the cart. You know, someone's gotta. It got away from the Lamberts. <laughs> we got away from the Lamberts for a little bit, but I have a feeling we're getting back to them. Yeah, here comes the red-faced demon. Got that ghost coming <laughs> probably, back, baby. Probably. Um, I don't know. It's it's an it's an interesting series. Um, 
it has many shades, many colors to it. Um, I don't know the time that took place between these two, but this one seems a little bit easier to understand than his first one. Mm. It may it may have been posted, you know, sometime later. Became a better writer. Maybe he, you know, the author became just more experienced, in in kind of honing honing in on what he wanted to say this time around. Because sometimes you do that Battlestar Galactica thing mm. where you just throw like a million darts at a dartboard and everyone ends up being Cylons. Yeah. And you're just like, that's it. <laughs> he watched a lot of Hill House, wrote a story, and then he watched a lot of Prison Break. It was like, you know where I'm going next? I'm going there, bitches. Yeah, I mean... And then one day he saw a game of bocce ball and was like, you know it would be really cool? <laughs> if I just like took that head The most ball. unrealistic part of it is that he is being transferred. Like, no system that sees someone who murdered someone actually says, you're fine, and the, just lets it happen. You the know? fucking progress that that fucking doctor was all for. There was no time. Like, there you was a time. to it. There was a time lapse here, <laughs> and we didn't recognize it at all like four Such years of his progress. life <laughs> four years of his life just passed by Ugh. in those 40 pages and we treated it like two and a half weeks i really <laughs> like, i really thought it was gonna get to the point where his brain was just mush and maybe he was just stating things over and over and they over alluded to the idea of that happening but i don't think that that's the narrative that the, that the guy actually wants to tell i don't know if summers is even coming back I don't know if Summers was even really truly related to the first part. What if he's related to the doctors that used to cut people up? Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't yeah. know if he was even related to the first part at all. I don't know. I don't know what's actually continuing there or not. What what else is fluid from part one to part two? And maybe that's why it is called a companion series and not a direct sequel because they very much are telling different sides of that's a true. of a coin. It's. It's a pyramid, and we're getting a different triangle each time, Ooh. you know. But what will the last one be? Obtuse. Because this one was pretty uh, cute. <laughs> oh, you cute. <laughs> um, I'm a little right. Expe expectations for next part? Do you have any? I'm gonna see some ghouls. Oh, okay. Yeah, I... You can't end your fucking story on, hey, I'm being transferred to Haunt Central. <laughs> <laughs> Next Heart, stop. Haunt MD. <laughs> you know? Well, Ghost Grey, Town. Grey's Anatomy with ghosts. <laughs> like, oh, no. You just can't, you can't say that at the end of a story, but I guess he did just say that. So. This week on Ghoul Anatomy. Deputy Dewey, d do you want to get institutionalized at Haunt? hospital all i wanted was a pepsi and she <laughs> wouldn't give it to me you're lucky to get a coke zero <laughs> mm, aspartame any of those tony hawk pro skater lovers out there i got you boo anything else you want to say to end the episode the holocaust Deputy? was exaggerated wow <laughs> <laughs>